Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, the meeting will come to order. Welcome to the June 23rd, uh, 2023 meeting of the Budget and Appropriation Committee. I'm Supervisor Connie Chan, Chair of the Committee. I'm joined by Vice Chair Raphael Mendelman, Supervisor Safa Asha Safai, Hillary Ronan, and Shaman Walton. Our clerk today is John Carroll. I would like to thank uh, SFGov TV for broadcasting this meeting. Mr. Clerk, do you have any announcement? Yes, thank you, Madam Chair. Just a friendly reminder to those in attendance in the public viewing area, please make sure to silence your cell phones, your electronic devices, and other devices you may have so as to not interrupt our proceedings today in the chamber. The Board of Supervisors and its committees are convening hybrid meetings that allow in-person attendance and public comment while still providing remote access and public comment via telephone. Public comment on the proposed budget as agenda items one and two will be taken on Monday, June 26th in a meeting to start at 10 a.m. And the public comment on the balance of the items of the agenda will be taken before committee action on those items. Those attending in person will be allowed to speak first and then we'll take public comment from those who are waiting on the telephone line. For those who are watching remotely or through streaming on sfgovtv.org, the public comment call-in number is Moving across your screen at this time. Follow the instructions on the screen, and when you are connected, you'll hear the meeting discussions, but your telephone line will be muted and in listening mode only. If your item of interest comes up on our agenda and public comment is called on that item, those joining us in person should line up to speak, and those on the telephone line should dial star three to be added to the queue. If you're on your telephone, please remember to turn down the volume on your television or other listening devices you may have with you in order to prevent us from having issues with an echo on your line. That way we can hear you clearly. Uh, each speaker will be allowed up to two minutes to speak unless otherwise stated by the chair. Alternatively, you may submit your public comment in writing in uh, either of the following ways. You can email the usual Budget and Appropriations Committee clerk, which is Brent Halipa, and his email address is brent dot j-a-l-i-p-a at s-f-g-o-v dot o-r-g or you may send your comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office in the clerk's office that's room 244 City Hall's address is 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place San Francisco, California 94102 whatever materials we receive from you we will add to the file and send to the members of the Budget and Appropriations Committee for their consideration on the matter on which you are commenting and that is the end of the pre-meeting announcements, Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Um, before we start, I'd like to take a quick moment to let everyone know how today's hearing will run. We will call up departments in order listed on the agenda today. We will hear from the departments on their responses to the committee's questions last week. Then we will hear the budget and legislative analysts on their recommendations for further reduction um, and the department's response. Um, and for any departments that actually have multiple uh, recommendation around either the reduction or policy recommendation that uh, that there may be disagreement. Uh, we will be uh, going one uh, recommendation at a time to allow the uh, department present the reasoning for disagreement and then for the budget and legislative analysts to respond to that. Uh, so instead of like a whole, the entire uh, list of things that 
going through, we're going to do it one by one to prevent confusion and much easier for also for everyone, including our controllers, to track uh, the um, results. So with that, um, Mr. Clerk, could you please call item one and two together? Agenda item numbers one and two are the proposed budget and appropriation and salary ordinance for the fiscal years ending June 30th, 2024 and June 30th, 2025. Item one appropriates all estimated receipts and all estimated expenditures for departments of the city and county of San Francisco for, or as of June 1st, 2023, excuse me. And June, uh, excuse me. Item number two enumerates positions in the annual budget and appropriation ordinance, continuing creating or establishing these positions, enumerating and including therein all positions created by charter or state law for which compensations are paid from city and county funds and appropriated in the annual appropriation ordinance, authorizing appointments or continuation of appointments thereto, specifying and fixing the compensations and work schedules thereof and authorizing appointments to temporary positions and fixing compensations. Thank you. And um, just also a reminder for uh, everyone that um, after the presentation and conversation, they will, uh, we will go into recess till Monday. That's when the public comments will take place for item one and two. And that is Monday, June 26, starting at 10 a.m. And all the public comments starting on Monday will also be limited to one minute. Um, so with that, uh, our first city department presenting today is the San Francisco Public Library. Good morning, Chair Chan and Supervisors. My name is Maureen Singleton. I am the Chief Operating Officer for the San Francisco Public Library. With me today is the library CFO, Mike Fernandez, and we are both here to answer any questions that you might have in addition to our presentation today. I wanted to start off by thanking the Budget Committee, as well as our analysts at the Budget and Legislative Analyst Office, Rashi, for the work with us this budget cycle. Um, and in response to the chair chance, I can start with the questions that were presented at last week's hearing and then move into our discussion about the proposed reductions from the budget analyst's office. Is that, is that the correct order? Sorry, I, I, do you agree to the, to the budget and legislative analyst reduction? Okay. I'll and, start there, yeah. yes. So with respect to the reductions for materials and supplies and the salary attrition salary savings, we are in agreement with the right. budget analyst office. That generates about $485,000 of savings per fiscal year. With respect to the policy recommendations about our three MEA position changes, we are not in agreement and respectfully ask for this committee's approval of the changes as proposed in our original budget. And I'm happy to go through one by one those uh, items if you like, as per your request. So um, starting with the change for the chief information officer position, this proposed change allows us to revert back to the classification that it was once before with the last uh, position recruitment. It was changed to a manager, or I'm sorry, deputy director two, but that position was vacated in se late September of 2022 and assessing uh, what the classification should be. We feel like a manager for a position would be more competitive for a chief information officer. In addition, some of the responsibilities have grown over the lifetime of the previous incumbent, 
And so we would like to uh, shift it to the manager three position to be competitive, have a larger pool of applicants to help us address our IT infrastructure needs as well as cybersecurity. Good morning, Chair Chan, members of the committee. Dan Goncher with the Budget and Legislative Analyst Office. Um, as was noted by the department, um, our recommendations for the proposed budget total 485,000 in both years, um, which is uh, ongoing. And we do have agreement on the budget recommendations summarized uh, that are listed on page four. As the department mentioned, uh, we have disagreement with the recommendations four, five, and six, which start on page five of our report. The first position is a proposed upward substitution from a deputy director two position to a manager four position at a cost of $16,130 for the city's chief information officer. The second position is on page six. It's an upward uh, substitution of a 1926 senior materials and supplies supervisor to a manager one. This would be for a position to oversee the department's fleet delivery and receiving logistics for the library. And the third position is on page seven of our report. It would be an upward substitution of a library page to a manager one for the city archivist position. The total cost of all these upward substitutions would be $240,241 from the library fund. Um, we are calling attention to these upward substitutions as we have been for the last couple days as a reminder that we do have a structural deficit in San Francisco. Um, our expenditures consistently exceed our revenues and um, it's, we consider these upward substitutions to be a policy matter for the board. Thank you. I'm happy to provide additional context for the other two substitutions that we're looking at. So uh, the other position is changing a vacated position, it, which was a senior materials and supply supervisor position. Previously, that position only oversaw our stockroom, inventory, and mailroom. But with that turnover, we determined it made sense to consolidate the oversight of several units within our facilities division under one position. So as Dan mentioned, that would expand to include our fleet management, which includes vehicles and equipment, as well as our delivery services unit. The delivery services unit moves materials, library collection materials throughout our system, our 28 branches, libraries, including the main library, as well as moving materials with our two support facilities. The final position is the city archivist position. This is a position um, would give additional capacity to our history center at the main library. The current incumbent has been there for 27 years and during her tenure, the responsibility for archivist work has ballooned. This additional capacity would allow that position to really focus in on archivist activities, not just for the city departments, which that position works directly with, but also with community and neighborhood groups so that we can preserve their rich and diverse history, make it accessible to folks. So adding this capacity through the substitution would allow that unit, the history center unit, 
to really focus in on that activity as well as providing uh, direct, more direct support within the History Center for the work that happens there on the regular with researchers and, and the public coming into the center itself. We also have book arts and special collections in the History Center. So with that, we respectfully ask for your approval of these three positions as originally proposed in the library's budget. Thank you, I appreciate it. Uh, I, uh, I, I, I don't know if I'm in, the, in, in agreement uh, with the library at this moment, just seeing the upward substitution, it's about a quarter million dollars that's ongoing, um, and that uh, at this moment. Um, so, but colleagues are welcome to disagree, argue, Vice Chair Mandelman. I mean, these are hard questions with each of these departments that is asking. I mean, I, the arguments for each of these positions, I think, make sense. And I can see particularly where there are positions that are empty and they're trying to find highly qualified people who ideally will be around for another 30 years, um, that they do want, you know, the ability to hire the right person for those jobs. Um, so I would, be, I would be inclined to reject the policy recommendations, but we kind of have to see where we are and where the plane is landing. Okay. Uh, Supervisor Safai. Thank you. Uh, I, I also agree. I think that we certainly want really well-qualified people for these positions, and it's important to be able to recruit. Um, but we're just we're in a really difficult time, and so it's really hard right now to ask for promotions, particularly on vacant positions, when we're choosing between you know funding SRO, uh, collaborative code enforcement, funding for childcare, seniors, and and family programming, and so. As much as I would like to support, I just feel like it's a really difficult ask right now, and we need every dollar we can to be able to spread across the board. So I'm inclined to accept the BLA's recommendations. I mean, we, we can't just keep rejecting the BLA's recommendations. We're gonna be left with not a lot on the table to work with to deal with all these other shortfalls we have. So um, I, I agree with uh, Chair Chan in this situation for sure. Supervisor Ronan. Yes, can I ask a question, just a clarifying question? Sure. So for the recommendation five, um, policy recommendation, are you combining two positions into one? Is that for the city archivist position? N no, 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 that's for the, the materials and supplies oh. supervisor? No, it is, uh, currently it's a full-time position. Okay, so yeah. it's a promotion, it's not combining two positions into right. one. Okay, Correct. is that, and that's, that's the case for all of these positions? Yes. Okay. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm tending I'm leaning more towards Supervisor Mandelman. I, I I think you've made the case. However, I hear our chair and Supervisor Safai. So can we just continue, continue this yeah. and continue to have this discussion? Uh, that would be great. Sounds good. Uh, Supervisor Walton. Thank you, Chair Chan. And I just wanted to make sure everybody understands that I associate my opinions and comments with Supervisor Chan and Supervisor Safai. Thank you. So I think uh, we will continue this conversation, but as you can see, we're the majority of this body mm -hmm. somewhat leaning toward at this moment. Uh, we love the library, don't get us wrong. We, we really do, And but at this moment that we're also seeing that um, promotions for uh, two positions mm -hmm. and, uh, and then an increase uh, of that for a vacate 
basically recently going to be uh, vacate our vacant position, uh, knowing that you, it may actually take you a while to hire as well, whether right. it is with that uh, existing position, which is someone hold for a very long time, clearly right. still actually works. So yeah. that's kind of where we're heading. Okay. I'm curious if the committee would be amenable to us increasing our salary savings in acknowledgement that these positions will take a while to recruit. Um, it's just something we wanted to offer that we are amenable to um, increasing the salary savings for this upcoming fiscal year to recognize the fact that we would not be filling the positions immediately. Okay, sounds good. Okay. Thank you. Um, I also wanted to make sure that I responded to Supervisor Safai's questions last week about um, the Ocean View Capital Project. So. Um, my understanding is that there was a question about the feasibility study. So let me start off by just reiterating. Not to cut you off, but there was not any question about the feasibility study. The feasibility study was very clear. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so what I, I wanted to know is how much you have spent uh, on the Ocean View Library, mm -hmm. how much you have remaining, and then our intention is to put that on reserve until we have a full plan. So we're not wasting money looking at sites that don't exist. That, that's, 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 that's the proposal. Okay. So um, just to give a little bit of extra context, that feasibility study cost uh, roughly $98,000 to look at those nine parcel sites to determine where is the, the of those options that were examined, what was the optimal site at that location. And we've been working with MTA and CTA, as you know, to address the concerns around pedestrian and traffic safety. So we are, while we are waiting, the outcome of MTA's designs for that specific corridor really around Sagamore, Orzaba, Alamany, and, and Brotherhood Way, we felt that it was prudent for us to take a fresh look at some of the options along the Broad and Randolph corridor. And uh, we have asked the department or the real estate department to take a look at that. We have not spent any money on that activity to date, but uh, we figured that that was a prudent thing to do while we await the results from the MTA study, which my colleague at MTA had indicated though that outcome, that design outcome, could potentially impact the building programming for the site at Orzaba. So we, are, we remain committed to building a new facility for that community, and we're just working on finding the optimal site for it. Right, and, and just to, I don't want to waste any more time, but... The, the study was very clear, and I have actually have a letter from the MTA saying you should not delay moving forward in any way. You should proceed on the Orizaba site. We will do short and long-term traffic uh, mitigation. So that's the main disagreement, that you all are spending and wasting time, and the project costs are going to escalate. So that's why we may, we're going to ask that that money get put on reserve. And we're going to work with you to drill down on that specific site, which is what the community wants and everyone has said. So I don't want to waste any more of the chair's time. Thank you. No problem. appreciate for that, that update. Thank you. And uh, I just want to articulate that uh, I am in support of uh, Supervisor Safai's suggestions on putting the remaining um, dollars dedicated to the Ocean View Library on reserve uh, until we understand better uh, I just want to say we have done the similar uh, 
situation, we have done a similar task with um, with a human, a human services agency with 170 Otis. We put it on reserve because it was not clear to us what the re uh, relocation, relocation plan actually looks like. So I just want you to know, it's, it, we have done it with, to other, with other city departments when the plan is unclear. Um, so I just wanna leave it like that and uh, thank you so much. Thanks. And uh, next we have our city attorney and thank you so much for returning to the chamber in person again. Good morning, Madam Chair. Supervisors, let me just start by thanking you and your staff for your tremendous hours of work during this very challenging budget. I want to thank the Mayor's Budget Office uh, and their analysts. And of course, I also want to thank the BLA uh, and their staff and do want to state at the outset that we do agree to the proposed reductions recommended by the BLA. And I'm happy to answer any questions if you have any. Madam Chair, um, our recommendations for the city attorney are on page summarized on page 13 of our report. The recommended reductions to the proposed budget total $363,183 in fiscal year 23-24. Of that amount, $163,183 are ongoing savings and $200,000 are one-time savings. In addition, we recommend closing out prior year unexpended encumbrances of $1,067 for total general fund savings of $364,249. And our recommended reductions to the proposed budget total $170,377 in fiscal year 24-25, all of which are ongoing savings. And as the city attorney noted, we do have agreement with the department. Thank you. Thank you for uh, being here again, uh, even with this uh, in, in agreement. I know that we will have more discussion um, as we had last week about the gun violence, yeah. you know, additional uh, investment to the city attorney's office. I think that um, we're gonna do our best to continue this conversation. Uh, frankly well into probably the weekend as well to see what we can do and I just want you to know that we're committed or at least I'm committed to that uh, supervisor Stephanie and supervisor Ronan we're, we're committed to that to, to continue to see that through um, it's just work in progress I think you know how this process goes I certainly do and again I just uh, appreciate all your work all the work I know you're going to be doing over the next couple of days and uh, hope you get a little sleep between now and when the budget is approved July 1st exactly Thank you. Great. Thank you. So the next we have uh, Department of Emergency Management. Good morning, uh, Chair Chan. Good morning, Supervisors. Happy to be back with you this morning. I'm Mary Ellen Carroll. I'm the Executive Director for the Department of Emergency Management. I'm pleased to report that DEM agrees with the recommended reductions detailed in the BLA's report, which totals $359,172 in fiscal year 2023-24 and $159,690 in 24-25. Beyond these non-policy reductions, there are two policy recommendations, DEM-5 and DEM-6, and one reserve recommendation, DEM-7, that I'd like to further discuss with this committee. Before speaking on these items, I will defer to BLA for their report. Thank you. 
Thank you. Through the chair, um, our recommended reductions to the proposed budget for the Department of Emergency Management are summarized on page 20 of our report and total $359,172 in fiscal year 23-24. Of that amount, $156,224 are ongoing savings and $202,948 are one-time savings. In addition, we recommend closing out prior year unexpended encumbrances of $68,144 for total general fund savings of $427,316. I'll just note that these numbers uh, have been adjusted since our report was released on Wednesday um, to reflect uh, updated information on the encumbrances that are available for closing out. Um, as the director noted, we do have um, policy and reserve recommendations, which I'm, uh, we will speak to uh, in a moment, but um, we also recommend, uh, we have recommendations totaling $159,690 in fiscal year 24-25. All of those are ongoing savings, and we, are, uh, we will respond uh, after the director speaks to the policy and reserve recommendations. Thank you. And sorry, I just want to quickly, uh, I do understand uh, that, am I understanding correctly that at least we are very much in agreement with the uh, recommended reduction? Thank you. I, yes. I just want to set the yes. baseline first, and then before we go into the, the conversation of the policy recommendation, thank you so much. Please go ahead. Thank you, Chair Chan. Um, of the two policy recommendations, uh, the first one I'd like to address is DM6, which refers to three new manager positions with the interim exceptions within DEM. These are to help manage various programs that are associated with our street crisis coordination division that we described in last week's hearing. Um, the BLA has not recommended decreasing these three positions, as we noted for them, um, that their temporary appointments currently and essentially these filled appointments are formally being consolidated uh, under DEM's budget in the ASO uh, authorized positions. Um, for DEM 5, there's a policy recommendation with, which ties DEM 7, which is a re reserve recommendation. Um, both of these two recommendations are associated with the drug market Agency Coordination Center, which we call DMAC, um, that I also described last week. The hearing, the initiative was proposed for 5.5 million, and the policy recommendation um, for DM5 is 1.277. Um, this is the operational portion of the 5.5. So these um, include the costs for leasing the space at 1155 Market, the hiring of three temp positions, not the ones I was just talking about, uh, separate, and then the one, and then just associated technology costs for uh, operating the center. Um, so that's 1.277 of the 5.5. And then there is a, re a reserve recommendation for 4 million, which addresses the remaining portion of the 5.5, which really covers work orders to other departments that are supporting the operation of the DMAC. Um, as we noted with the DLA, the BLA, that these uh, that these work orders and this operational detail is still being finalized. So, whatever decision is made for these funds, I just would like to have it, and I'm hoping that will be in the context of the operational uh, contact emergency and response that we are in. 
um, and we expect to have details for that very shortly. And I, you know, I just hope that wh whatever decisions made, we're able to act quickly uh, to allocate those funds. So that's what I have for the, for uh, the policy. I'm happy to answer questions. Good, good morning, Chair Chan, Lyndon Berry with the Budget and Legislative Analyst Office, uh, members of the committee. Um, here to respond to the policy recommendations. As the director noted, um, the Drug Market Agency Coordination Center is sort of an ongoing initiative that started in April. Um, the plans are still sort of being finalized. So our recommendation to place about $4 million on reserve um, is related to the work orders, as the director noted. Um, to have the department sort of come back and present a more finalized plan for the use of the work orders when that's been developed. Um, and the remainder of the operating budget, which is about $1.2 million for the DMAC, we consider to be a policy decision for this board. Um, and then related to the other policy consideration, um, DEM four or six, one of them, um, six. Uh, as the director noted, these are filled positions. We are just sort of laying out the pretty high increase in managerial positions at DEM, um, and so we are not recommending that they be laid off, um, but it's sort of just there as a mm -hmm. notification for this body. Happy to answer more questions. Thank you. I, I do want to concur. Uh, in, in this case, I want to say that <clears throat> I want to concur, uh, the, 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 and I appreciate uh, highlighting that uh, increase of managerial positions in the DEM uh, as a division. Uh, but I do see Vice. Oh, uh, I thought that you were. Um, I do see Vice Chair Mandelman has some questions, so I'm going to leave for Vice Chair Mandelman to start. But I, I have some thoughts, really, about your your budget increase over time. For you know, since the fiscal year 2019 to 2020, um, it has increased, you know, f by 44.1 percent. Understandably so, because of the pandemic. But even then, so so the question is like. Is this the rate of continued increase, um, or are we able to actually see at some point to scale back? Um, it, it's, it's just some of my concerns of seeing that the spending, it's quite significant in just a short couple or three fiscal years, and now you're back to continue to ask for increase, but in the staffing level is managerial instead of seeing more so, so, so to speak, it's like boots on the ground positions, but I understand, you know, it's probably you're being tasked to do a lot more citywide initiative, but I guess ultimately my question is, is DEM the best place to sort of house some of these initiatives for the long haul? Mm -hmm. That's all. Thank you. Vice Chair Mandelman. I mean, I would, my guess is that the Department of Emergency Management would like to go back to the business of managing emergencies um, uh, of the more traditional variety. But uh, um, we have learned during the pandemic that the Department of Emergency Management actually has uh, the ability to move quickly on things that are urgent priorities for the city and have the feeling of crisis or emergency in our street conditions and drug markets um, and encampments are very high on the list of things that I think most people think are emergent crises. I share the sentiment that this ought to live somewhere else, um, but for the moment I cannot imagine who else would take this on in, in our city bureaucracy and, and get, get the work done, um, which is important. Um, 
So I would, you know, I think that we, this is a department that is being asked to do a lot, and I think that it is important to give them the, the capacity to actually get the things done that we're asking them to do. And I'm also um, pretty reluctant to have the board um, uh, s potentially slowing down the standing up of the DMAC, which I think is pretty important, um, is a priority for the mayor, but I think is also a priority for my constituents who are besides them, beside themselves over the, drug, over the open air drug markets and want to see them addressed quickly um, and without delay. So um, those are kind of my preliminary thoughts on this. Thank you. Um, thank you, Supervisor Chan and Supervisor Mandelman. Um, I, I, I want to thank you for your confidence in me and my team, and I believe it is well put, um, <laughs> I will say. Uh, and I certainly understand the questions that you're posing. Um, it is true that I, I think we would have to look at the budget, especially the 44% over time with COVID and, and those things that have been laid on. Um, the boots on the ground really are what is uh, what you're what you see, and I think I sent we uh, provided you, Supervisor Chan, in response to your question last week, a detailed breakdown of all of the. Uh, street programs that I listed last week, which really shows, um, I mean, really in the thousands of people that are doing work, if you include the ambassador programs. And so, you know, the role that we play and the people that we choose to, uh, to put in these manager roles are people that are able to convene, that have experience on the ground. I have two licensed social workers that work on the street conditions team right now. Um, is that something I would have imagined when I was appointed director <laughs> five, six years ago? Probably not. I do want to just say that we are not particularly unique as an emergency management uh, department for a large city. Uh, increasingly across the country, uh, my colleagues, the folks that have my position and run these departments, are taking on these kinds of issues because they are crises. Um, and it is, a, it is a topic of much discussion among us. Um, and I think the biggest challenge that we have would, is lack of resources to do so. And I just, I want to acknowledge this board and also the mayor for giving us the resources, allowing us to bring talent into the department that benefits not only, it really is not so much a benefit for DEM, but it is a benefit for the city and the other departments. Um, and I, I will go out on a limb and say that I believe my colleagues that we're working with, um, if you ask them, would agree. I hope so. Um, the, and so these crises are things that we are continuing. A hundred percent, I would like to go back to, um, I, I, but I, here's what I would say about traditional emergencies. They, they really don't exist in that way anymore. Or better said, we have a whole, in the last 
really five, seven years, we have a whole new set of emergencies that we're dealing with that are related certainly to the sort of socioeconomic issues that we're doing now, crisis in the street, but also climate change and the management that comes from that, as you've seen with our heat crisis, with the air quality, and then this winter with the storms. Um, you know, we are we play a large role in coordination for the, what's about to happen here in the city, which I hope and pray is a beautiful, happy, joyful weekend. Um, but you know, we are always on alert for these things um, and ensuring that we can have safety for everyone. So, yes, um, you know, I th I believe that we are capable of doing to answer supervisors. Uh, uh, Safai's question from earlier this week or last week that we do have the resources but that is why it does require the level of management um, it really is pr complex program management more than you know the management for instance that I have at 911 where we're managing you know 180 dispatchers so I hope that helps a little bit to to describe it and and absolutely I believe that um, I see myself as sort of a lead crisis manager for the city, and it would be my hope that my job gets smaller over time and that the focus of so especially some of these um, crises that we see at the individual level and on the street, that we're able to move those into more kind of a sustained response and management of the, of the crises. Um, until then, my team and I feel very privileged and humbled to be able to lend what our talents and, and our experience to this. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like that's where, that's where we are right now. Thank you. Um, before I call on Supervisor Safai, I just want to quickly respond to that. I think that's actually, uh, I, I want to say, and I want to make a reference about just the city governing in terms of its history, that we actually have seen a very similar situation with the city administrator's office for the last like couple of decades. That oftentimes, that if the board supervisors or the mayor decided to do some type of legislation, and they just don't know where to house something, they just kind of throw it in to the realm of city administrator's office uh, at times. And then, and then it's eventually we actually have to require to have the budget and legislative analysts who really do a best practice overall for the city administrator. And I think when the city administrator Chu came in, she actually has to really reorganize some of her divisions and trying to really sort out the, uh, you know, efficiency within the, the layers of bureaucracy that actually was built over the years. And so what I'm saying and approaching to you at this moment is that I start with this increase of budget, but also the increase of staffing that I can kind of see. And also just based on your street responses efforts here, that layers of all these teams, I start to see, I, I'm not saying that it is, I'm saying that we need to have the foresight and learn lessons from city administrator's office and what we have done there to realize that like, are we, we need to really be um, safeguarding the role, critical role of Department of Emergency Management. And it's not just throwing things that into this department because the fact that it's been run efficiently. And then over time though, that I worry that we now going to add layers of bureaucracy that's including managerial hiring and staffing and levels of it, then you become bogged down by that and that you're no longer efficient 
to back to your very core mission to begin with. That's just uh, some thoughts there. And Supervisor Asafayi. Um, thank you. I, I just want to say I, I really appreciate the work that Director Carroll has done. I mean, there's been a few departments, not to say that all departments, all departments in the city have been working collectively and collaboratively over the last three years to deal with our crisis. Um, but your department, uh, like, like a few, has had many things thrust upon you in a very short order, and you've been asked to uh, manage a situation with limited resources. I mean, we did that tour of the 911 call center. I was, I was extremely impressed with the job that your operators were doing, but I was also feeling the pain and the frustration of being in very cramped space as their renovation is happening on the higher floors and, and also how your command, uh, the operations center has been put off and taken out of multiple bonds a few years in a row few times in a row, uh, which is a, a disservice to the emergency delivery system in the city, I'll just say that, which impacts our fire department, our paramedics, our police officers, every single frontline first responder um, in the city. Um, and it creates a stressful environment for your workforce. Then to have a whole host of, of initiatives thrust on you, and many times, and, and just in all fairness, uh, not, not necessarily with the clearest direction at the Tenderloin Linkage Center, which then was not a linkage center, it was just a Tenderloin Center. And now you have a new initiative. And so I guess my question to you is, do you feel like you're given the correct support and resources to really fulfill this, this newest mission? Because it's not necessarily part of your core, core work. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, I really appreciate the questions and I, I take them as sincere concern about the overall structure and organization. And a lot of them are sort of directed at me personally. And have I been given too much? This is being dumped on me. Um, I, I just, I wanna speak to that a little bit because I have not in any way to anyone said, I don't do this. Um, and. I feel that I am getting the resources that I need to do the work. And I think that we have done, I'm proud of the work we've done. I, I do not think that we've gone beyond our, our capability. I think the Tenderloin Initiative was set up in such a way that um, in a 90 day that was, you know, an impossible task to, to change what was going to happen there. And then what happened with the TLC somewhat was not, that was not in my control. Which is why, um, you know, I think with our, this new addition, the new initiative with the DMAC, we've been very clear the role of DEM is the, is in partnership with uh, the police department. We are really providing the support and coordination as an extension of what we're already doing on the streets with the street teams, which we have been very successful with um, from the position of HSOC, from, you know, helping to guide the street crisis response implementation, which also has already included some efficiencies and combination of teams uh, collaboratively that have been identified. And I suspect, and I believe that we're gonna to continue to do that. So 
it can be very hard in the city and to to break silos that I think everyone knows that I don't think I'm saying anything that's like controversial with that um and you know that just has to do with the fact that we are a very intense busy city and everyone has we have a lot of issues but also we have a lot of amazing things that we're building here and so you know people get busy and the success that we've seen is when we come together. And it just so happens that that is what D a role DM has played. But I also think, Chair Chan, you're right about Administrator Chu on the sort of more city services, how do we make all this stuff work in a proper way? I, I see my role more on the other side from on the operation, public safety side in a similar role. Um, and I and I think that when you do bring when you do have an entity that can do that, you will see more efficiencies. You, I have the ability, and my team has the ability to call out things that you know because we're, our dog is not in that race, right? Essentially, for individual programs, we're looking at it globally. So you know, I, I just, I guess I would just say when when you're told like, oh, it's too much, like a lot of people say that, but then I want to say, well, why do you, is it something that we're not performing <laughs> So, No, um, I, I, I You don't even, and I, no, I just, I'm not trying to be defensive, I'm no, just trying no. to reflect because it comes at me a lot and I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not really out here complaining about it. No, I, I, I feel guess, like we're getting the resources we I, need. I guess what I would say is when you have a system, and, and I think you admitted this because you're, you're working on a system that's stressed because you're down, 911 call operators, we're down EMTs, we're down firefighters, we're down police officers, we're down in our emergency response system, which I think is your core work, and now you're asked to do these other things, yeah. it takes away from that core, that's, that's yeah. my only point. I'm not, I, yeah. say, I'm not saying you're capable, not capable, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying that you're complaining, we've never once heard you complain, in fact, I always see almost 90% of the time a smile on your face, which... I think you, you approach the job with, with you know, limiting the stress, and I think that's a really healthy thing. Yeah. I would just say you th have a lot of initiatives thrown at you in a very short order, yeah. and it feels like sometimes there's not necessarily always a clear mission, at least on our end, yeah. and you're having to react to that and build a plane while you're flying it. Mm -hmm. That's my point. And so if you're building the plane while you're flying it and you have this core work over here that's stressed, underfunded, and... There's a lot of turnover, right? Because people can't work 15-hour mandatory 911 call days and listen to people and stressful situations, or EMTs can't respond to. Uh, that's my only point. Yeah. No, and I, I definitely hear you. And in cramped quarters. Uh -huh. And and that you know I think though the characteristic of our problem at 911 honestly is not so much a funding issue. We fought hard to get them a raise this year. We are implementing a lot, but it is really difficult. I have spent the last two nights after my days at dispatch just to be there so that they know I'm there, right? right? Um, my office, the building is under construction, so I'm, my office isn't there. You know, it, it is... It is really important that they are they feel like that I'm with them and that we're paying attention. And I can assure you that we are. Um, Rob Smuts, who's my deputy director, is just I mean, I can't say enough amazing things about him and his dedication. So it, the the nine one one crisis that we have, and I 
I would characterize it as that is a staffing crisis. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as we presented last week, we are, we see a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, unfortunately, the tunnel is a two-year tunnel, and there's no way to bypass it. So, you know, but we are filling our first academy. We have a full academy class for the first time in three years. And that is partially because, and will probably more than partially do in the investment that you all gave us last year in a recruiter that has like quadrupled our uh, applicant pool. That's great. So, so we are eyes on the prize with that. Um, but it is going to be ongoing. And um, so I, I, I appreciate that. And I am pulled in different directions, but that is the job. And so, you know, if I have to leave this and spend some time with swings and mids shifts, that's what I do so I can hear directly what's going on. And, and they also come to me, which I feel like is a good testament of the, of the, trust that they have um, in me to say like, hey, we haven't seen you enough or this is a problem that we're experiencing. What are you doing about it? Um, and a lot of what we have to do right now is, is support those dispatchers who have one of the hardest jobs in the city and they're doing it under, under duress right now because of the staffing issues. I, I could keep asking questions all day, but I, we want to keep going. Thank you. Appreciate it. Supervisor Ronan. Yeah, I just wanted to, to take the opportunity to point out a couple things. Um, the fact that you just said that dealing with street conditions is not a San Francisco unique role now for uh, the Department of Emergency Management director, but that your counterparts all over the country are taking on this role as well. I, I think is really important to highlight because what I keep saying, and, and, and I'm, I feel like I will be a broken record on this because I don't think it's discussed nearly enough, is we get so much negative media attention on San Francisco, but the problems are not unique to San Francisco. What you're dealing with, Director Carroll, is the emergency of poverty. And we don't call it poverty, but that's at the root cause of all of the issues. It's at the root cause of homelessness. In many ways, it's at the root cause of drug addiction, uh, less so with mental illness, but it certainly makes mental illness worse. Um, and it's not just happening here in San Francisco. It's happening all over the country, and it's been made more public because of the pandemic, which fast-forwarded what was already a crisis in the United States of America, so that we're seeing it on the streets. And so I just, you know, every time we have this conversation, yes, we can do things better in San Francisco. We can all do things better, right? And, and, and that's what we're constantly trying to do. Uh, we're constantly trying to use limited resources in the most effective way to, to get results. And the balancing act that we're all constantly trying to get right and often disagree on what the right balancing act is, is how do you address the root causes so we're not dealing with this problem forever versus how much do you address the symptoms of, these, of the root cause of poverty so that it's not life and death situation for people today. And I think we don't talk about this enough. Uh, you know, the, the, the root of these problems 
are not with, you know, the way that we govern in San Francisco. And, and, I, and it's not to say that we don't have a role in it. We can make it better, we can make it worse. But the root cause of the problem is that we have a broken tax system at the federal level. We have a truly broken political system at the federal level. Um, and that our policies, again, at the federal level, are designed to make the rich richer and the poor poorer. And that is why we are dealing with the crisis in the street that we're dealing with today in San Francisco, in Los Angeles, in San Diego, in Humboldt, in uh, Seattle, in Portland, in New Jersey, even in the Midwest. You know, I mean, this is not, this is not a San Francisco problem. And so I just, every opportunity that we're talking about this, I have to make this point because nobody talks about this. You know, we're constantly on the defensive in San Francisco because the press has decided to make us the punching bag of the country. And so we're trying, and, and, and so what ends up happening is we end up fighting each other and blaming each other when the truth of the matter is <laughs> we are doing the best we can at the local level to, to deal with a crisis caused by a broken system in the United States of America. <laughs> it's not limited to San Francisco, it's all over the place. So I just, I'm gonna put this out there every time we talk about, you know, we argue about, we argue about the margins when we never argue about what's, what's truly driving this crisis. And we have to, if we're gonna ever get true change. Thanks. <laughs> I mean, I agree with you and um, have this conversation all the time with my kids and other people. And, um, and you know, my job is not to solve the root cause. It is to address and try to mitigate some of the harm that all of that has caused in the street. And I would also say that, um, and I would add other cities like Dallas, Miami, Houston, like a lot of red states Every have city. everywhere. Every so, city. but, you know, and I, I just, I think this always feels very controversial, but the fact is that we also, because of how we approach, which I'm not suggesting is a bad thing, the way that we assist people, it brings people here because we do it we do more of it, and we are in a compassionate city, and we offer a lot of services, which we're going to continue to do. So, you know, the question that we're, we are struggling with now, I think, as a city is, you know, how do, we, how do we have more accountability? How do we balance accountability with assistance is sort of how we're looking at this now. And, um, and as we've noted, the impacted community, the communities where the situation on the street is the worst are poorest communities. They're the color, they're the pe where people of color live more than white people. They're where immigrants live. And so it's that balance of trying to reduce the harm that they're experiencing and trying to eke out an existence while we help the people on the street that whose trauma is causing the behavior that's causing the harm. So, you know, those are, those are the things that on the daily we are trying to balance in our attempt to govern. 
And I, I hear you, and I guess the only thing I would disagree with with what about what you said is, yes, your main job is to address the day-to-day the, the -day realities in our streets, but if we don't all start to see our job as also looking to what's causing these problems in the first place, then we're never going to change it. And not only are we ever going to change it, it's going to continue to get worse. Like, that's where, you know, these gimmicky, constant strategies, whether it's the Tenderloin Center and the Tenderloin Emergency, whether it's, what do you, what's the new one? The new one is called? It's the DMAC. The DMAC. They're not going to work. You know, you might be able, and if they work, they're going to work for like six months, and then we're going to see the same thing the minute we... We, we, we put off our foot off the brake because they're not addressing the root causes of the problem. We can't arrest our way out of poverty. <laughs> we can only change systems so that people have their basic needs met, right? If you, if you don't have a home, if you don't have enough food, if you don't have access to healthcare, access to education, and a way to get a living wage job, you're, it's really hard to get clean, you know? It's like, and the reason that you're sick in the first place is because you probably grew up in poverty. I mean, it's the same debate we're having over Prop C, right? Over big Prop C. Do you take money from youth and family homelessness to deal with the more visible adult homelessness in the street, or do you end family and youth homelessness so that they don't become the adult homeless tomorrow, right? It's all a balancing act. And I, you know, it's, I, I, I hate to say it, and, and you're often, you are often asked to implement because you do such a great job. And, and, and you know, I believe, uh, Director Carroll, that you do a fantastic job of quickly mounting new initiatives, but we never commit to a strategy and see it through the long term. What we do is every six months or so, there's a new press release entry, uh, uh, announcing a new gimmicky, you know, and, and they all have their like little names, you know, cart became hard and, you know, best, you know, the, the sort became best and, you know, all of these things, they, 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 they're, they're so, they're, 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 it, it, it's, it's not honest, it's like, nobody's being honest. It's like, what new gimmicky thing can we come up with, put in a press release to pretend we're gonna make a difference on things that we can't possibly alone as a city truly fundamentally change. And so sometimes the gimmick is more service oriented. Sometimes the gimmick is more criminal, criminal enforcement centered. But they're all ultimately, you know, half-baked plans that are not truly designed to fix the problems. You know, I, I, and, 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 and I think the only one that we tried to be comprehensive in thinking of long-term fixes is Mental Health SF. And, of course, I authored it, so I'm biased, but I would say that we've never truly implemented it. We've never truly put all of our efforts into reforming our mental health system so that it truly works and so that we have the amount of 
services that work on the back end of a system. So whether you're arresting your way out of it, whether you're, you know, coaxing through relationships and, and, and therapy your way into it, you are, you have the back end system that works for people. We don't have that back end system. If we don't have that back end system, call it whatever you want to call it, you know, put, put Director Carroll on, on the top of it, hire some talented new people to come into the city who are going to make that miraculous change that everyone and their mother beforehand has tried to do and couldn't do. And then you burn them out. And then burn them out, they'll leave, and then we'll fail again until there's the next new gimmick. And I just want to be honest, I'm so sick of this. It's just like, let's tell the public the truth. You know, like, the, the, this is, the, the truth is, we have a broken system and we cannot solve it on our own. So I, 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 just, I just think it's time for some truth-telling instead of the, this, this, you know, uh, charade we put on constantly in this city. Thank you, Supervisor Ronan. Uh, Vice Chair Mendelman. Thank you, Chair Chan, and um, I mean, it's budget, so I don't know if we want to have a deep philosophical conversation, but I'm, but I'm willing to engage, uh, but I'm willing to- But it has huge budget I, implications. I, I, I agree, I agree, I agree, I agree. But, but, uh, but and I'm, the ones I, we're I'm, talking I'm, about, the five million we're talking about I, right but, now. Right, and so I'm going to take <laughs> the invitation to engage in the, in the broader disagree the broader sort of policy agreement and disagreement, and there is Real a question, policy Tom. agreement and disagreement, and the agreement is, because we don't really have right-wingers on our board of supervisors, that I think we all agree that um, these problems are largely economic in nature, that a uh, more robust social safety net that actually had a decent housing for low-income folks um, on the order that some other countries have somehow managed to do, um, that had uh, a more robust commitment to wealth redistribution and not allowing massive concentrations of wealth for a very small number of people, um, that there are a whole bunch of kind of larger factors. And I think that where, um, I, where we're all, I think, in agreement is that San Francisco should try to do our part to, um, to try and right what is an imbalance at the state and national level. And so where I do not agree um, is that I think that we cannot only focus on root causes with our, with our budget. And I, and I don't actually think you believe that because I actually think that as a supervisor, although you are talking about our need to address root causes and you argue vociferously for policy interventions that I'm not sure, I mean, that are very much about root causes. We cannot, as a city, only address root causes because our, and I don't, and I'm not, I'm not saying you are, but, but I think that we have, as a city, I think pursued a policy which, sound, which may not be what you meant, but sounds a little bit like it, which is if we can't address root causes there's not much we can do. We are only we we need to put our resources into addressing root causes, and at some point the city, the state, and the national government will will help, and things will get better. I think that we have to address the symptoms. That if we don't address the symptoms, that our city and I and I'm not saying you don't believe this, but but that we, that the interventions with things like the DMAC, no, it that, that does not address poverty. That does not address the larger social challenges, 
but we've lost control of our public spaces in ways that other places that are subject to the very same social and economic imbalances that we have, have not. Uh, and to a degree, I think, that other places have not. We, we can argue about that. And I think the interventions that we make on treating the symptoms just, you know, have an impact. And we have criminal justice tools that we can use, and we have public health tools that we can use. And I'm with you on trying to address the root causes. And I also think we really have to address the symptoms using all the tools at our disposal. And I think, honestly, in this city, we were not prosecuting drug sales for, in any kind of meaningful way for a very long time. We are, are very reluctant to use criminal justice sanctions against use, even when that public use is having massive negative impacts on the surrounding community. And so I think, yes, the DMAC is not a roots, a roots cause solution. The involvement of all of these public safety agencies does not get at the root causes, but for the benefit of lots of low-income people who are living in and trying to survive in some of the communities that are most impacted, you know, I think actually this is a new approach. I hope it is sustainable for more than six months. I hope it's more than 50 people. Um, and, you know, that we actually see what happens and whether we are able to impact street conditions, get any of the folks who are getting detained and brought to um, sobering facilities into some kind of lo better, longer-term intervention. But I think we have to do that. I don't think we've done it in a sustained way. I think this was kind of the idea behind the Tenderloin State of Emergency, which was never actually implemented. Um, and I'm hopeful that we can get it right this time. Thank you. And um, Supervisor Safai. I just have some, I, I promise you, these are not gotcha questions. This is just truly because the only thing that I've really, I, I know uh, your department has sent us a detailed analysis. Thank you for that. But I, I just, I don't really understand what the mission is. Is the mission to stop overdoses? Is the mission to stop drug dealing in an area of the city? Is it to stop drug use? Is it to promote recovery? I, I, really, I really don't understand what the mission is because, and that was my basic question about the Tenderloin Linkage Center, because it, what, was it intended to stop the overdose? What, and, and I think at some point the mission veered and, and changed. I, I don't understand what, what the mission is. I can guess, I can see what I've read in the paper, I can hear declarative statements from the mayor and then they change every couple weeks. I don't, I don't know what, the, what this is. And, and that's kind of what I was trying to get at by saying, you have this core work over here that's, on a, that's stressed to the limit, and now you're being given a new charge. And, and I don't think you know, we, as one of the 12 leaders of the city, elected leaders of the city, to really guide this, I don't know what the, what, the, what the mission is, other than what I've read in the paper. I, I could make, make things up, but I, 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 I could would, tell you. <laughs> I would like to know. Um, so, and a lot, this was all, I believe, in the material we sent you, but we have, there's three main focuses of this drug market coordination center. Drug sales, um, in which PD, the sheriff, and the DA are coordinating with state and federal partners which includes Pelosi's Operation Overdrive to identify, arrest drug dealers and traffickers to disrupt the supply chain and reduce profit 
profitability of the overall operation. This is not a short-term partnership, but a long-term sustainable strategy to help maintain clearance of drug sales from our, from our city. Um, the second is pub public drug use, and this is SFPD and sheriff coordinating to arrest and detain those who pose a danger to themselves and to others. Anyone who is detained in the jails is supported by jail health services and offering access to voluntary services upon release. All of the work we're already doing to provide assistance, so all the city health and homelessness outreach workers, all the programs that we've outlined are already doing that work. And we are in discussions with the public health department to see where we can have public health and public safety, law enforcement in particular, collaborate on on structures and ways in which we can help people who enter the criminal justice system or divert from there, okay? Because again, these are people with who are sick. This is a public health crisis in part. The illegal, and then the third rail or the third area of focus is illegal fencing and unpermitting, unpermitted vending. Um, in which PD will be enforcing illegal sales of stolen goods that are really fueling the drug market, that are very tied deeply and enmeshed in the drug market, and support public works with their as their role as as the per, the entity that enforces with inspection, confiscation, and other enforcement. It is uh, a very dangerous job. They're folks that they are enforcing are armed and they require, they being public health, require support from PD. So those are the three areas. We are not in our mission looking at overdoses. This is a public safety operation. This is focused on the drug market. And the vast majority of the work is on the very first one that I described, which is the supply and goes well beyond San Francisco. So those are the three areas of focus of this, of this operation. Thank you. Supervisor Walton. Thank you. Thank you, Chair Chan. I don't have anything. I'm, I'm speechless. Supervisor Ronan. Thank you. So I, you know, I, to, to Supervisor Mandelman, I, I'm in no way saying that we can't we can't we we shouldn't deal with the symptoms in fact 70 percent of my work now as supervisor is dealing with the symptoms in the mission i mean you know i that's ha that's way more than half of what i do i'm just saying those are never going to change unless we're honest about what's driving the crisis and 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 even if we're not even if we can't at the local level change the root causes because in many cases I don't think we can that we're constantly being honest with the public about it and putting pressure on our federal and state partners about what they're failing to accomplish instead the mayor blames the board and the board blames the mayor the mods blame the progressives and the progressives bl blame the mods and the press says we're all failing when it's just it's just like let's be real about what's actually happening and none of that is true and yes we have policy disagreements but the policy 
disagreements. Like, I have some criticism. Like, I'm about to ask you some really specific questions about this program and why I think it's fundamentally not going to work in the long run. But, but it, it, it's almost pointless because, like, why am I not screaming from the rooftops about this program? Because it, it's like we know that there's the majority of votes for it. We know that, it, you know, it's like it's Supervisor Walton says this all the time. Like, why even talk about this when we know it's a done deal? And it's because someone's got to tell the truth about what's, what's happening out there and, and try to redirect the energy and the false narrative out there and the false, you know, fights in City Hall it, towards, like, what's, what's really the problem that, that's out there. So, so let me tell you it, through questions, and, and feel free to answer the questions and tell me that I'm wrong, but through questions, tell, tell you why I don't think this is fundamentally going to work on a long term. So all of these, you know, your three areas, all of them are comp so complex. They are so complex that they are, there's an international component to this that we're not talking about at all. So, so the drug sales. So the three recent prosecution of um, Honduran or other Central American uh, drug uh, dealers in the Tenderloin all resulted in a hung jury. The vast majority of those cases, the, 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 the ratio was way more for um, a not guilty verdict than for a guilty verdict. Why? Because the public defender put on incredibly persuasive evidence to the jury. Why is it pervasive? Because it's true that those individuals are trafficked. Because many, not all, but many of the drug dealers that are, are, are selling in the Tenderloin are trafficked. They're trafficking victims. And you need to really look at that. So you're not going to get many guilty verdicts out of the San Francisco jury because they see the evidence and they're like, oh, this is not with it. This person came here on false pretenses, was brought over by a coyote, lives in a house with all the other trafficking victims, is paying off the debt at threat of their family being killed if they don't sell drugs in the Tenderloin. Okay, that's the, the, the evidence. It's going to be backed up by experts on country conditions in those regions and they're not going to be prosecuted, right? What services are we offering those trafficking victims? Is the DA offering T visas so that they'll testify against their trafficker? What is the DA doing about the, the larger trafficking ring that brings these poverty-stricken, again, what's at the root of this? Poverty. Poverty-stricken Hondurans to leave their families risk their lives to, to cross a border that's becoming increasingly dangerous and then come here and sell drugs. Okay, are there any, so first question, are there any services for any of the Central American drug dealers that are being trafficked and under threat that their families will be killed if they don't sell drugs in the Tenderloin? That's number one, question number two. Question number two for the public drug users. We don't have a single open bed for dual diagnosis individuals. So, for example, 
Most individuals that are mentally ill and end up on the street self-treat by using illicit drugs. So they become, they go from having a mental illness to becoming a drug user, to, to having what's called a dual diagnosis. If they started out as a drug user, they are living a life of hell. They get robbed, raped, uh, you know, uh, beaten up. And so, and then they're using these awful drugs that have a permanent impact on their brain. So if they started out as a drug addict, they're now mentally ill, which means they have a dual diagnosis. We don't have a single treatment bed in San Francisco for dual diagnosis individuals. Where are these people going to go when they're diverted from the criminal justice system and forced into treatment when there is no treatment beds available? Number three for, uh, for um, the public <coughs> drug use. Have you asked the Department of Public Health if forced treatment works? Because I have. And guess what they'll tell you? And if you read the studies, this is what you'll learn. There isn't the best, it's the best um, evidence out there, right? The studies aren't great, but the studies that, that, that are there show mostly that forced treatment is not very successful. It doesn't really work for people. And then last, how many step-down beds do we have for people that if they get that miracle one spot in the dual diagnosis treatment program, so they're arrested off the street, they go into diversion after two, now not after five, but after two times, they're forced into treatment, they get the, um, the miracle one bed that's appropriate for them. And then when they're done with that program, where do they go? Guess what, we don't have enough best step-down beds. So guess where they go? Right back into the streets. Tell me, how are they supposed to stay clean on the streets? Their life is a living hell. Did you read Heather Knight's program about that poor woman living in hell? It was depressing. What was mental health SF supposed to fix? That. What have we diverted our attention to for years now on all these gimmicks? Not fixing the underlying programs that would have made Heather Knight's article not true. We would have put her into real treatment. We wouldn't have wasted all this money on all these things we're spending the money on. We would have built a system that could have accommodated her. And then finally, I totally agree with you because I've spent two years during dealing with illegal fencing. It is absolutely directly tied to the, to the, to the drug, drug use thing. So I don't know how you, we call them backpack vendors in the mission because we, we've dealt with like the more or less, we haven't fully, but we, we, we've half dealt with the, you know, the fencing operation that was larger in scope. What we haven't figured out is how to deal with the backpack vendors. Who are the backpack vendors? They're drug addicts. They steal some stuff for a store, put it in a backpack, come up on BART, put their stuff out, sell it, and then for 15 bucks they can score their fentanyl for the day, right? And so how do you stop, the, how do you stop that? That's not a larger fencing operation. That is directly tied to drug use, which is directly tied to this, to, again, the poverty situation. So that, how are you going to stop the backpack vendors, which is now the biggest problem in the mission because we dealt with the bigger fencing operations. And, and, and so, I, you know, answer me one of those questions and I will feel slightly better that this, that this new DMAC program will have any chance in hell of working. So 
all of the issues that you have raised are ones that are on the table and that are being discussed at the DMAC. I am not going to answer your first question. I'm not the district attorney, and that is not my area of expertise. I am not the SME, the, the subject matter expert at the table. I am the convener. But I can assure you that all of these things are part of it, and, and, and you are welcome as all the, the supervisors to participate in this process. We have reached out to every single one of you. All of you have areas of expertise, Supervisor Ronan, you certainly do on the mental health side, and you are welcome to the table. I am, as I mentioned previously, many of these questions about public health, they are engaged in the conversation. And, you know, I, I think on your second question about dual diagnosis, I, I find that surprising that there's not one bed available, but that may be well true. What I have been told and what we've been discussing is that it is hard to get people in the beds, and that is partially what we're trying to, to address um, because of what fentanyl... I mean, I think here's the other overlay. Fentanyl is a relatively new, crippling, lethal crisis. Relatively new. And I understand, I hear, and I'm listening to all I'm having, I'm begging the people who have the expertise to come to the table. Because it's, I'm not that person. But I also have to ask, like, what evidence do we have based on this? We don't have 20 years of evidence of this drug and what it does to this person. And the young woman that you're describing that has been out, you know, who I, I see her when I come in every day. I think that, you know, we all have to have, we have to put everything on the table. That has been our mantra, literally. That is my mantra for this, for this operation. Um, and I, I can't remember exactly what your third question was. <laughs> it was about fencing. Um, you know, those are just things that we, that we understand have to be part of, of this. You know, I think when we started out this conversation, I think you would agree, like, you know, we had this ordinance that gave deep, deep uh, public works all of the sort of responsibility and authority to enforce and handle this, this situation, but it is out of control and they cannot do it by themselves. So that, that's why the collaboration at the table and through this is important. And I, you know, I just, I, I know that you, you know, some of the words that you've used to describe, I, I get your perspective, like gimmick and this and that. I mean, it isn't for me and it isn't for the people that I have working on it who are like 12, 14 hours a day working on this and not in vain, like not to be in vain. So will we be successful? I don't know, supervisor. Like that, that is why I'm here. This is hard work. This is, this is the kind of work that makes you want to go and, you know, live on a mountain somewhere and not talk to anyone. <laughs> but, but, uh, er, but, you know, so you just do that on the weekend. But, you know, that, that, that's where we are. So, you're, so I just invite your participation. You're more of an SME than I am on a lot of this stuff. So please join us. Thank you. And, and we'll see. But I, I, um, I just want to say one thing. I, I, I know how hard you work and how hard all your staff works. And I don't think that's a fair response. I, my staff and I work just as hard. And let me tell you, I'm trying to deal, I'm trying to 
make it so that what all of our hard work actually means something. That's what this is all about. Uh, we are we spend so much time spinning our wheels, and you know I think it would behoove us, you and I, and all of our staff to say, yes, some of the work we have to do 100% is symptoms. Like we, we cannot allow, I, I, where you and I agree 100%, and, and I know we agree because we work together all the time on it, is we can't allow what's happening today to happen the way it's happening today. So we agree with that. But if we don't add some, some, some vision in there and, and, and some part of the work that tells the truth about what's happening, and has a portion of our work addressing that truth, then I'm gonna be gone in a year and a half, but you, director, and your staff, and, 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 and all of us are gonna be here having this exact same conversation every single year for decades to come, because I do not believe that this is gonna work unless there is a vision of getting at the root causes and some work towards that end. And I swear I'm done talking. <laughs> yeah, and thank you. And I just, I did, I was just, I just remembered, you know, we, we did have your staff person and Pres President Peskin at the DMAC this week. I think we met for like two hours almost. So it is, the, the table literally, you know, your office has been there and the, the invitation is real, and at any point, we want and welcome that participation. Thank you, and Vice Chair Mendelman. Thank you, Chair Chan. Thank you, colleagues, for uh, uh, enduring the, this a little bit of a colloquy here. And, um, and I, am res I am responding to um, Supervisor Ronan's questions, and some of the things she has said, I'm not responding to the way you supervise, because I see how you supervise, and the way you supervise is you are tireless in responding to when you see a block that has been overtaken by drug sales, you push for whatever you can get to address that, whether it is pu putting fixed police there or putting up fences or whatever the thing is, because you recognize that your people, particularly your poorest folks, shouldn't have to live like this. So there's, um, but I, and I, and my office to a lesser extent because your challenges are far greater um, east of my district um, but we do the same thing and I think a lot of our districts you know to a greater and lesser extent are are trying to address these symptoms because the symptoms are real and and just and I do want to um, it may be ultimately not a solution but if we stop doing the things I think, it, I think part of the predicament we are in is because we largely stopped our drug enforcement, our response, our criminal justice response to drug sales and use for about 10 years. And I think that is a piece of where we are. Your point that's, that we, are, we as San Franciscans are um, generous people who, when we are on juries, respond to the human... To, to, to the real to the real stories or maybe not real stories i think the district attorneys would have, would have, would say that these are that this notion they, they do not accept this notion of trafficking and they don't think the evidence for it is particularly good but in the cases that they have in three of these cases you're right they have gotten they've gotten hung juries that is not the only those dispositions of those drug cases are a tiny fraction 
of drug cases. P drug dealers do spend time in jail. Um, uh, those cases are not, the, are not the easiest cases. Those are often hard cases. And so when, when we stop arresting dealers or prosecuting dealers, things will get worse. Prices will go down. <laughs> there will be more sales. When we give up on addressing that symptom, um, you can point to all the ways in which we are going to fail as a city in using criminal justice tools. But if we give up on them entirely and pull back entirely, things will get worse. They have gotten worse. We are in a bad state in part, I believe, because of that. Um, so I don't think that prosecuting drug crime or arresting uh, dealers is pointless. I think it's essential, even though, you know, it's not going to solve the root causes to the lack of beds. You and I have fought for more dual diagnosis beds. We will continue to fight for more beds. It is a shame on this state. It is a shame on our city that there are people who need this level of care who cannot access it. And shocking as it is, um, uh, uh, Director Carroll, it's actually true. If that particular, I'm not, you don't have to respond, but, but that like, that particular type of treatment for people who are severely mentally ill and also have an addiction, very almost next to impossible to find an appropriate uh, treatment slot in, in that particular category. But there are many, many drug treatment beds in this city. Many of them stay, uh, go unused. And many of the folks who you are pulling off the street, in, not you, but who the police department um, are pulling off or who outreach workers are engaging with, don't want drug treatment. They don't want the bed. And so does that mean we leave them where they are? And I would say no. I fully hope that a stepped up response to um, clear open air drug scenes will also come with what I think we will be fighting for, which is expanded treatment opportunities, more step down, and more facilities that are appropriate for people with severe mental illness. But I don't think that the fact that we don't have those means we can concede the public spaces. And the last argument is people want to say that forced treatment doesn't work. I think you can say that treatment doesn't work. The outcomes on treatment are poor. The, the, the studies are unclear. You can bring out, the, and absolutely, there is entrenched ideological opposition within the Department of Public Health to forcing people into treatment. I think they're wrong. And I think that there are experts who, who are uh, the, you know, the former drug policy director for the Obama administration who actually thinks we do need to be pushing people, nudging people, encouraging people, perhaps even forcing people to have periods of, of, of forced sobriety where at least the drugs can clear out of their systems. What ha in that Heather Knight story, that woman who's at general over and over again, what does she get? She, she gets some relief from those periods where she forces her, her own self-destruction forces her into a position where she can't access drugs. And for that week or two that she's at general, she's not accessing drugs. Yes, maybe there's some intervention for her that would prolong that period. I think it would be interesting to say, what if we could send her for six weeks to a facility that is not general, that she cannot leave, and the drugs are out of her system for a little longer? Would that lead potentially to her being more willing to accept the offers of treatment and support that are being given to her. That's also in the Heather Knight story. All right, I'll stop.
All right, this is truly the last thing I want to say because I want to, I want to offer a vision for what I mean when I say that we can change this if we tell the truth about what's going on. You and I, Rafi, let's go on the road and we can have this debate for, you know, outside of the committee where our chair is about to kill us. So, um, I'm not killing anybody. <laughs> so, um, to, so, so it's, it's kind of a three-part thing. Number one, you have to address the underlying poverty. How do you do that? You change our tax code so it, it provides more welfare to the poor than the rich. Right now, our tax system in the United States of America provides so much more welfare to the rich than it does to the poor. What, some other day, I'll get into the details to prove that point, but, but it's true. Number two, the feds have to build housing again. They have to build public housing. The fact that they've stopped doing that for decades is what got us into the housing crisis we're in. It's not that our local laws, you know, here in San Francisco and the market can never fix it alone. We need the feds to get involved in building housing again. Number two, legalize drugs. The way that we will control the supply of drugs and make sure that it doesn't lead to overdoses is when doctors are prescribing it, not your traffic Honduran drug dealers on the street. That will make all the difference in the world. When you regulate and you control supply and make it healthier and cleaner, that's what will get, help people wean off and get their lives back together. And number three is instead of wasting money on all the gimmicks, the short-term gimmicks, and yes, this is another gimmick, it's called the war on drugs. We've tried it for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, it doesn't work. The way that you do it is you build out a system of care that works. So that individual who gets clean at general when she's forced there by her illness, she, she wants housing and treatment programs. They don't exist, Rafi. Read the article again. She was like, yes, I don't want to go back for it. And they couldn't get her in to a treatment program. Why? Because we've spent all of our money on gimmicks instead of implementing Mental Health SF, which is the system change that would be the system behind the problem that would get that person who's ready for help in that minute into an appropriate level of care and then a, a sober housing unit when they get out. So there is a way of fixing it. This is not a hopeless situation. It's just that we have half s measures, admittedly because we're not responsible all the time for, for making the changes. The feds have to be part of the solution. But these half s changes that we, that we change every six months, you know, like through the press release, through the half s planned idea that, look, in 90 days we're going to set up a you know, coordination center that's going to eliminate drug trades in the Tenderloin, instead of having a long-term plan that we build over time that actually works for people. And I promise I will, I will not say any more, but Rafi, I, I challenge you to this debate on the road. We should, just, we should just continue to do it in public. Thank you, Bo. This is what happened when you have two brilliant lawyers for colleagues. <clears throat> they, they continue on with this. I appreciate the debate, though. I actually think that this debate, bring it back to full circle, is exactly the reason why is this still the critical role of the Department of Emergency Management, or is this actually, a, and is this sustainable for actually Department of Emergency Management to bring on, and 
This is not actually a question posed to you, uh, Director Carroll, as a professional, but it's actually a question posed to the city governance as a structure and whether that DEM as a department, not as you and your talented staff, capable or not, is whether this is actually a suitable role. Um, I do want to ask, uh, after all, uh, really just about your budget quickly, uh, and this actually kind of bring back to your core function. How is 1101 Turk Streets uh, in terms of your um, emergency building, like your actual mm. uh, headquarter? I understand that you're supposed to actually have capital improvements, and how is that process doing? So, um I may have will come up and talk a little bit about this if if uh, I'm missing things, but so it's ten eleven Turk uh, right now, and uh, Supervisor Safai re referred. We are in the middle of an ESER project that is expanding and improving our nine one one operations floor, which is on the second floor, um, and so. The inside of the building is getting much needed uh, improvement on the ops floor. That's why everybody is downstairs all squished in the EOC room. And we do have, uh, we have ongoing needs for that building. So that building is over 20 years old and there are uh, ongoing maintenance needs that are not all being addressed. Um, we, you know, there was, there were limitations this year in budget and it is, it is an issue that I have raised to capital uh, planning and the mayor's budget office around the needs uh, for, for ongoing maintenance for that building. As it is not only the 911 center, it is really the nerve center for uh, DT for our main, for a lot of our servers and uh, systems that go outside of emergency management, totally. but other, other so, city systems. Uh, Director Carroll, case in point, that's your core mission. You and your team really, really need to report back of how you're actually dedicating your staffing and resources and figure this out and report back of a timeline and how you're actually coordinating with city administrator choose who oversees the capital planning. This must be done and it should have been done. And I think, again, a lot of other things that's put, put on your plate, but this is the core mission that you as a director and your department's really supposed to be focusing on, one. So that's like one thing that I would like a report back for this budget process, understanding actually what is your staffing level, budget allocation for this capital improvement for this core mission. And then I want to actually go back to this whole list of uh, street response effort, which I appreciate. Thank you so much for putting it together. Uh, I wanted to just re-off for everybody, but most importantly, it's really for the public to actually understand the list of uh, so the list of coordinated streets response program. I'm gonna read off though, the ones that I'm not too sure. Uh, I, I'm gonna read off first, the ones that are actually what you identify in the category of planned outreach. There are the ambassador programs, which is your coordination of the ambassador. There are the uh, best neighborhoods teams, which is operated by, by you as well. Uh, that is a follow-up care and community-based therapeutic interventions to people served by street crisis team. And then there are the Healthy Streets Operations Center, which everyone known as HSOC, uh, a co collaboration with the citywide partners, uh, linking folks uh, with six tens and more with services. And then you have Office of Coordinated Care, you have Post Overdose Engagement Team, you have uh, the San Francisco Homeless 
and support, uh, a homeless outreach team. You have the street medicine team. And then you also have the tenderloin joint field operation. And then you also have now known as HART, which is the homeless engagement assistant response team. And then you do actually also have a list of uh, crisis response ones. But technically, what I'm seeing out of this is one, two, three, four that are crisis, or, or at least under your crisis, the category that you listed is EM6, which is the fire department and community paramedic. And then you have the street crisis response team. Also, again, it's with the fire department uh, responding to behavioral health crisis. And then you have the um, street overdose response team is also considered as crisis response. And then, of course, you also, so some of these categories that they function like the urban alchemy, which is the homeless engagement assistant response team, looks like it's functioned as both the crisis response and plant outreach. And all these, uh, thank you so much for listing them out. But it seems like, I'm not too sure, but it seems like it's missing the unified command uh, and also street collab. And then I remember from your presentation last week that is specific indicating that street collab is for Castro. Um, so I would like to see those two to add back up. Uh, to help me understand, though, what I'd like to see as a follow-up is that I would like to understand for each category the numbers of FTE as well as uh, budget for each, like spending and, or operation spending for each of these um, coordinated streets response team. And with that said, uh, so it's the information that I'd like to just understand both in a crisis response as well as your plan outreach, the staffing level, uh, dollars being spent. I do want to flag for yourself. I think this is what you said, and I think that this is a, it seems like actually, sounds like you're in agreement with um, budget and legislative analysts about putting the dollar on reserve. I, I, I don't know, but on page three of the material that you provide about the drug market agency coordination center today, on page three that you actually, this is what you, your team have put together and say that like there are also personnel costs associated with standing up and running this new effort. Currently, this command center is being activated and directed by a, a 0954 deputy director and about 10 of her staff, all full-time, so FTEs. This team is also responsible for all proactive planning and reactive response to any other citywide emergency. They have been reallocated to this mission temporarily. This is an unsustainable model, and this team needs to revert back to their mission of preparing for known events like Pride, 4th of July, Outside Lands, Fleet Week, and APAC, as well as no notice emergencies like storms, fire season, and earthquakes. So again, I, I'm trying to reconcile for between uh, what you presented today with what the BLA has actually recommended to put the dollar reserve. So I'm trying to understand, are we actually in agreement of putting the dollars uh, on reserve as a policy recommendation specifically for this? I, I refuse to call anything acronym, just so that you know. I, it's nothing on the, on the uh, acronyms that you have created to make it easier for operation, but Drug Market Agency Coordination Center looks like you right now is budgeted for $5.5 million, and I think that um, the BLA has suggested that we actually uh, recommend uh, recommending uh, putting the reserve for about $4 million, uh, all which is one time. Uh, what is your response to that? In our conversations with the BLA, uh, we we did 
uh, we did agree to putting on reserve okay. um, as we are literally as we speak putting together the operation things are moving very quickly um, and so you know I my my notes are just that um, even in the next few days we may have more detail okay. I I can't in you know good I, I'm going to be completely honest with you as I stand in front of you today that I do not have those that does not mean I'm not going to have them by Monday um, and so that's where we left it with the BLA please please you know, I just ask you to consider that we activated this two, less than two weeks ago, um, yeah. and so this is we're in an we're in an, an emergency kind of response, and just so happens to be budgeted in this moment. So that's that's my response. Absolutely, and I think that like when we talk about the Tenderloin Language Center, um, remind me, Director Carroll, was it ultimately we also have like made the determination. It's a very similar situation and dynamic when we did the Tenderloin Linkage Center. We tried to ask the questions, but truly you were really just putting it together. It was, it's a crisis moment. We all recognize it was, it was and, and frankly, in my opinion, it still is. It's been a crisis on, in that area for quite some time. Um, and, and that moment that it was difficult to come up with staffing level or cost estimates. But at the end of that six-month period, we recognized it was roughly $20 million per month in operation costs. Was that, yes, that and that was just, that was all public health operation. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, so that is part of the reason I'm in front of you today telling you exactly what I need today um, which I which we came to an agreement with and as as we've been talking uh, we're still working out the details you're going to be speaking to some of the partners of the DMAC later today and they can speak to their part of the operation also Thank you. And so I think in order for us to continue on with this conversation, and you're right, Dr. Carroll, I'm more than happy to continue this conversation. I want to learn more, and I think that in earnest, to just try to figure out. But I think that also in earnest to actually figure out the, the FTEs and dollar being spent with your existing operations of coordinated streets response team that just help us understand how does it compare, how, allow the BLA to kind of come in as well with these inf additional information requested from you. Is there maybe a way that just, again, it's kind of like what you said, I think the BLA actually doesn't quite have the dock in this fight and help you like figure out like what, what are there could be overlapping. I'm not saying that there is, I'm just saying that allow us the opportunity to have that discussion and let's continue, continue that. Um, and so I think, uh, I hope that's clear. I'm gonna repeat myself and I like to do that just so that there's no any misunderstanding as, as we continue this. Again, I'm looking for the Turk Street's capital improvements dollar amount uh, in terms of dedicated staffing and that uh, maybe there's a capital uh, improvements reserve that you have or even budget, but if not, I think we need to really talk about that. And then I would like to just get the FTEs and operation dollars for those coordinated streets response team. Please do not just send it to the committee to also send it to the BLA uh, as you continue on with this uh, conversation on the policy recommendations for putting the drug market agency coordination on reserve. Um, with that said though, Director Carroll, we appreciate your service, we appreciate your team. Uh, and it's not an easy task, uh, neither do we have an easy task in front of us, knowing that the experience and learn lessons from the Tenderloin Language Center, that while we were all supportive, I wanna say that you have the support um, 
almost everyone here, you know, for the linkage center that, uh, you know, in, the, in terms of the entire board of supervisors, that is so also note that like towards the end of it, it was $20 million of operation costs that we came to a I would say a defeat, an end of a language center. I think that I, I certainly hope, thank you so much for at least considering putting it on reserve and recognizing that your team is being pulled away from the core mission of what they're supposed to do to respond to crisis um, like storms, fires, and earthquake. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sorry. I want to thank all of you and acknowledge the hard work of the committee, of the BLA, and of the mayor's budget office. We appreciate your collaboration. Thank you. And uh, Risa Sandler for the controller's office. Just to clarify on that DEM seven reserve item, are you continuing that as well or? Yes. You are. Thank you. Yeah, I think we are. I think we should overall like just looking, yeah, continuing it. Thank you so much. Thanks for Risa for <laughs> closing up back out. With that, um, so colleagues, I'm going to go to um, Superior Court next. Madam Chair, if I may, while we're getting adjusted and prepared to get the next presentation, I want to make sure I don't let an opportunity pass by. If departments are requested to provide response documents to the committee members and to the BLA, if we can make sure that Brent Halipa and myself are copied on receipts of those as well so we can keep the paperwork complete for interested members of the public. Thank you. Thank you. Please include the clerks, John Carroll and Brent Halipa. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, Madam Chairperson, and to the supervisors. Brand, I'm Brandon Riley, Court Executive Officer of the San Francisco Superior Court. And so I want to go over the um, grand jury. The grand jury is, the, is a county function. Um, the sta we staff the need of the grand jury. Uh, we are the fiscal agents for the grand jury's expenses, and that budget is $250,000 per year. Uh, Indigent Defense Administration, IDA, provides for representation to the accused when the public defender cannot. Our system of justice um, states that all persons are innocent until proven guilty, and therefore the accused are entitled to representation. Uh, this, these rights are guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution and by the California Penal Code, Section 987, and that budget has been $10.1 million. The year over year, uh, you'll see that the grand jury has remained constant at um, about $250,000 a year. Indigent defense has remained about the same at about $10.1 um, $10 million. This year, um, we have... Um, we will absorb a cut of $306,000 and the cut uh, recommended by the BLA of $75,000. <clears throat> In our last presentation, um, I just, sorry, I, sorry for interruption. Actually, like uh, Supervisor Walton, like has a reminder for me. Uh, I just want to make sure that are we in agreement with the BLA? We are. And. Uh, I think then we're good. We're good? We're good. Okay. We're good. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, we're good. As long as we're in BLA in agreements and both, the, so like if, if you're good, let's just go to BLA really quick to summarize the total recommendations. We'll go from there. Okay. Thank you, Chair Chan. 
Um, our recommended reductions for, to the proposed budget for the Superior Court are summarized on page 33 of our report and total $75,000 in fiscal year 23-24. All of those are ongoing savings, which means that, again, there is another $75,000 recommended in year two, fiscal year 24-25. And as the department noted, we are in agreement on those. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Uh, next, we will have uh, SFIRE. Or I should say, our fire department. Welcome, Chief. Greetings and salutations, and uh, thank you, uh, Chair Chan and uh, Supervisors. Uh, happy Pride Weekend, everyone. Um, I'd like to give a big thanks to um, the Mayor's Budget Office and uh, Sister uh, Anna Dooning and uh, Matthew Puckett. And, and when's the last time you heard this? Our friends at the BLA... Uh, Sister Anna Garfink, thank you very much. Um, and of course, all of you and your staff um, for your time and energy. And uh, I am happy to say that um, there are no policy issues for you to take up with us. Our agreement is a reduction of uh, $484,210, and we are in agreement. Uh, thank you. Um, yes, as the chief mentioned, um, our recommended uh, reductions to the budget total $484,210 in fiscal year 23-24. Of that amount, $421,194 are ongoing savings and $63,016 are one-time savings. In addition, we recommend closing out prior year unexpended encumbrances of $2,219 for total general fund savings of $486,429 and a recommended reduction to the proposed budget total $197,260 in fiscal year 24-25, as the chief mentioned. We are in agreement and happy ride. Thank you both, much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you, and then um, next we will have juvenile, pro juvenile probation. Good morning, Supervisors. Good morning, everybody from BLA and Mayor's office. Um, good to be back here. I will defer to the BLA to share their recommendations. Through the Chair, um, our recommended reductions to the proposed budget total $295,081 in fiscal year 23-24. Of that amount, $243,924 are ongoing savings and $51,157 are one-time savings. We also recommend closing out prior year unexpended encumbrances of $104,592 for total general fund savings of $388,429. Uh, our recommended reduction to the proposed budget total $246,005 in fiscal year 24-25. All of those are ongoing savings, and we believe we do have agreement with the department on those recommendations. We are in agreement, and I really want to thank the BLA for working with us. Oh over the last week on this. Thanks very much. Thank you, Chief Miller. We are good, thank you. Uh, and the next, we have adult probation. Good morning, Supervisors. Tyrus Madison, Deputy Director for the Department 
Adult Probation Department, and um, we are in agreement with the BLA's report and recommendations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so yes, our budgeted, our recommended reductions to the proposed budget total $396,399 in fiscal year 23-24. Of that amount, 65000 are ongoing savings and $331,399 are one-time savings. In addition, we recommend closing out prior year unexpended encumbrances of $32,326 for total general fund savings of $428,726 and a recommended reductions to the proposed budget in fiscal year 24-25, total $65,000, all of which are ongoing savings. And as the department staff noted, we are in agreement. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you to the budget land. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Chief. And the next, uh, we will have the Department of Police Accountability. Good morning, Supervisors. My name is Nicole Armstrong. I'm the CFO of the Department of Police Accountability, and I'm happy to announce that we are in agreement with the BLA. So our recommended reductions to the proposed budget for the Department of Public Police Accountability are summarized on page 53 of our report, and uh, they total $20,000, which are all one-time savings, and we do not have any recommendations to the proposed budget for fiscal year 24-25. As the department staff noted, we are in agreement on those recommendations. Thank you, and uh, I just, my apologies. I know that last, uh, last week we talked about, uh, really quickly, about the uh, administrative code, possible administrative code change uh, information. Do we receive that? Yes, I sent it on Wednesday to your office. My apologies, I have a lot of emails. I thought you did, so I just wanted to double check. We will follow up with. All right, thank you. In, uh, separately from the budget process. Okay, sounds we great. We appreciate it. Thank, thank you, you so much. much, thank you both. And so then next we have the, uh, Office of the Inspector General for Chef's Department. Good morning, Chairman Chan, Vice, um, uh, Vice Chair Mandelman, Supervisor Ronin, Supervisor Safai, Supervisor Walton. I am Dan Leung, the Sheriff's Department Oversight Board Secretary and currently the only staff member of the Department of um, uh, Office of Inspector General. I want to express my thanks and appreciation for the work of this committee, the BLA team, and the Mayor's Budget Office. This department is prepared to accept the BLA's proposed reduction for a total of $467,360 for uh, fiscal year 2024, 23-24 and ongoing of $42,826 for fiscal year 24-25. Uh, yes, so uh, our recommended reductions to the proposed budget for the Department of Sheriff Accountability are on page 57 of our report. They total $467,360 in fiscal year 23-24. Of that amount, 42826 are ongoing savings and $424,534 are one-time savings. Our recommended reductions to the proposed budget actually are slightly different than what you just said. I have $33,420. Um, and so... Typo, sorry. Okay. <laughs> so I think we do have agreement on those numbers. Yes. Okay. Thank you. It doesn't sound too far off, right? So we're, we're good. Thank sorry you. Sorry about that. Although I would always say, or my late, late mother would always say, every penny counts, but <laughs> so... 
Thank you. Thanks nope, for nope. being here. Oh, sorry. My apologies. Supervisor Walton. Thank you, Chair Chan. Thank you so much. Just a quick question because I know the mayor proposed a higher um, number of FTEs than what's in this budget. Uh, what is the purpose of submitting a lower amount of FTEs for this new department? Uh, currently, we are in the process of just hiring the uh, IG for now, and after the IG is, uh, the OIG is uh, hired, then we'll be adding staff to it. Thank you. We're, we're good? Okay, so then the next, we, thank you so much for being here, and next we have the Sheriff's Department. Good afternoon, supervisors. Uh, Catherine Johnson on behalf of Sheriff Paul Miyamoto. We are in agreement with the technical reductions from the budget and legislative analyst offices, and we are in disagreement regarding a policy decision. The chair, uh, our recommended reductions for the sheriff's department are summarized on page 62 of our report. Our recommended reductions to the proposed budget total 60. $627,551 in fiscal year 23-24. Of that amount, $70,551 are ongoing savings and $557,000 are one-time savings. In addition, we recommend closing out prior year unexpended encumbrances of $95,102 for total general fund savings of $722,653. Uh, as the department noted, we do have a policy recommendation totaling $33,184 in fiscal year 23-24, which is ongoing uh, and annualizes to $34,260 in the second year. We also have budget recommendations of $70,551 in the second year. Regarding the um, policy recommendation that the department states they are not in agreement with, this is a uh, proposed upward substitution of an 1823 senior administrative analyst position to an 0922 manager one position at a cost of $33,184 in fiscal year 23-24. Our understanding is that um, this position uh, works with the sheriff on strategic planning, annual reports, and as a liaison to other law enforcement, legislative, and government agencies. And we are highlighting this position as we have highlighted many of the managerial and deputy director positions that are either new or proposed to be substituted um, as um, high cost positions. They serve a role. Um, but there's been a high growth in the last three years of these of positions in these series. And as we all know, um, the city and county faces a structural deficit year after year. So we just wanted to highlight that as a policy consideration for the board. Thank you. Um, I would say initially, like colleagues, I, I think, uh, you know, even yesterday, I want to say along with um, I, I think I've been the one that's sort of taking the hard line of like, and, and you should know that, like we just did that to the library and we love library. <laughs> and, uh, and library was also the upward substitution uh, for, the, for the managerial uh, managements. And then even um, 
just for DEM just now too. I, so I just kind of want to say it's not just, I know it seems like it's just the, the, the $33,000, but it's all adding up collectively together uh, for today. Uh, I think we're, we're, we're happy to continue this uh, conversation, but at the same time, I don't think that uh, this body is going to be uh, inclined to uh, support this uh, upward uh, substitution sure, at this time. I appreciate that. Thank you. Can I just offer a little bit of information on this particular of person? Course, of this course. was a current employee uh, of the department as in 1823. We did an analysis of work and the work that this particular employee was doing, and we submitted that to the Department of Human Resources, who conducted an analysis. Their analysis returned that he was working out of class and that the 0922 was a more appropriate classification for this particular employee. There are 11 specific tasks associated with that job. Eight of the 10 were directly related to the 0922 class. Two were directly related to a higher class, and one was not applicable. So based on the recommendation, that position was converted, um, and that employee currently is receiving the 0922 compensation based on that process. So I just want to say this is a current employee, and this process is to adjust and fix that in the budget. And I understand your reservations. I do. Thank you. Thank you. Vice Chair Mandelman. Um, I certainly appreciate that this may need more further consideration, but that, that, was, that was compelling to me. Um, could we noodle on it? Let's, uh, well, it's, it's, we'll get back to you. Okay. Thank you. We appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, my apologies. And uh, next is actually the public defender because we already had the fire. Good morning, everyone. I know it's been a long week. I want to uh, first thank my office team that's been working with the BLA, Janica Lee, Hadi Razak, Lisa Lacoste, and I'd also like to thank uh, Carrie Tim and Demond Daniels for all your hard work. And the committee for all your hard work on the budget this year. We are accepting the BLA recommended reduction of uh, 15873 However, uh, regarding the policy matter for the board, um, this is a substitution that was already approved uh, by the Board of Supervisors for the 22-24 budget cycle and then later uh, requested and approved in the 23-25 budget proposal with the mayor. Um, when we went through a leadership transition, uh, we couldn't directly fill the position because the attorney was in an 8177 classification. So she had to be promoted to a head attorney position first. And then in order to be put in this position, uh, this is Angela Chan, um, who is, everyone knows, is, is an absolute, um, you know, just amazing uh, attorney. And it's also fitting with our uh, racial equity plan and our shared leadership vision. So that's what that position is about. And we're urging the board to re-approve that. That's already been approved two years ago, last year. Uh, 
So uh, our recommended reductions for the Public Defender's Office are summarized on page 83 of our report. Our recommended reductions to the proposed budget total $15,873 in fiscal year 23-24, all of which are one-time savings. Uh, in addition, we recommend closing out prior year unexpended encumbrances of $9,358 for total general fund savings of $25,232. In addition, we have a policy recommendation uh, that totals $15,996 in fiscal year 23-24 and annualizes to $16,331 in fiscal year 24-25. Um, just want to make a couple points about the policy recommendation. Um, as the public defender noted, uh, this was in the second year of the two-year budget that was approved last year. Uh, for general fund departments, we have a rolling two-year budget process, which means that the budget is approved every year. Um, the second year is sort of a placeholder, but it is for, you know, is a budget is for, for planning purposes more than actual execution. Um, and then the position, our understanding is this for the chief of confront and advocacy. Um, and the department would like to align the position under the same classification as the other two chief positions. Those are chief of operations and chief of defense and advocacy. And um, our understanding is that the existing classification, our, well, our assessment was that it was sufficient for the responsibilities associated with this position. The chief of confront and advocacy oversees the confront and advocate division, which does not provide direct representation in criminal defense cases. Um, the Confront and Advocate Division's Integrity Unit files police misconduct complaints with the Department of Police Accountability and then investigates these complaints. Uh, which, sorry, which then investigates these complaints. The Integrity Unit also assists the Defense Division with filing pitches and Brady motions to obtain evidence for clients' defense. Um, and the Communications Unit issues press releases and responds to press inquiries, among other duties. Um, the division also provides oversight and support to the research unit's civil litigation matters, including pending litigation regarding on ongoing trial delays in the SF Superior Court system. And one last point I just want to make, um, that the chief of confront and advocacy oversees units with less staff than the other two chief positions that um, the department says that it should be equivalent to. The other two assistant chief attorneys, the chief of operations and chief of defense and advocacy, oversee units with at least 20 staff members, whereas the chief of confront and advocacy oversees units with a total of 11 staff members. So we're available for questions if you have any. Thank you. And Supervisor Walton. Thank you, Chair Chan, and thank you, uh, Public Defender Raju. I think you know, I really like the focus on parity, uh, and plus we have a constitutional mandate here, so I just want to remind us of that. Sorry, I just want to confirm, Supervisor Walton, what you're saying is we should deny the policy recommendation and then support public defenders. I agree with the public defender. Understood. Okay. I think then in that case, because um, Supervisor Walton rarely <laughs> has, like, you know, put his foot down on this during this process, and, uh, and I want to respect um, that. Uh, if colleagues, if that's okay, I, I just think that it, it does make sense too, and I'm actually glad that Supervisor Walton actually is the one who's <laughs> is speaking out on this, and so I appreciate that. So thank you so much for being here. We appreciate all the work that you and your team do. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Happy Pride.
happy pride. And colleagues, we do have uh, the district attorney uh, and then police department here. Should we should we continue? Sorry, my, my apology uh, to just to the public. Uh, I, I was thinking that we were going to go to uh, break. Uh, didn't think that we we're going to get through as as quickly. Um, so uh, if it's, uh, I think at this moment, seeing that it's only 12-11, we are going to continue through uh, with remaining the two city departments, uh, which is the district attorney's office and the police department. So um, district attorney. Madam DA, how are you? Thanks Hello, for being here again. Good. Happy Friday to you all. Um, good afternoon, uh, Chair Chan, Vice Chair Mandelman, and Honorable Committee members. Uh, as you know, I'm District Attorney Brooke Jenkins. Uh, I am happy to state today that we are in agreement with the budget and legislative analyst recommendations. Um, it's always great when, as a prosecutor, you can agree <laughs> with someone. Um, I would like to take this opportunity to, again, thank Carrie Tam of the BLA and all the work of the mayor's office to this point. Um, I would also like to thank this committee for their time and attention to the important matters of the city and prioritizing public safety and the resources that um, agencies like mine need. And so I'm happy to stop there and answer any questions you have or defer to the analysts. Through the chair, um, our recommended reductions uh, for the district attorney's office are summarized on page 90 of our report. Our recommended reductions to the proposed budget total $253,761 in fiscal year 23-24. Of that amount, $13,000 are ongoing savings and $240,761 are one-time savings. In addition, we recommend closing out prior year unexpended encumbrances of $1,000 for total general fund savings of $254,000. $761 in fiscal year 23-24, and our recommended reduction to the proposed budget total $13,000 in fiscal year 24-25, um, all of which are ongoing savings, and as the district attorney mentioned, we are in agreement. Thank you both. Uh, we appreciate it. Um, uh, DA Jenkins, thank you so much for your team uh, and all the work that you do. Thank you so much to uh, Eugene for sending over the, all the information so quickly on a Sunday. Uh, I will actually separately follow up, if I may, about just the Crank Start grant uh, in a separate occasion, not during okay. the budget process. Just wanted to learn more about uh, some of your grant program and how we can learn more about it. And, and I appreciate all the work that you all do. Thank you. Thank you. I, my apologies, okay. Supervisor Safai. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Chair Chan. Um, thank you, Madam uh, District Attorney. I, I know that we've been in this ongoing conversation about uh, a, an attorney si assigned to retail theft that's not reflected in your budget, uh, but you did say you were going to plan to look at grant funding or state funding. Is that still the case? I just wanted a quick update on that. Yes, so we are in the process of completing the grant application for a vertical retail theft prosecutor, um, which is what we had discussed, which just, just became available through the state. Um, so we will be submitting our application by the deadline for that um, in hopes that we can at the very least get uh, a position through that grant. Uh, and at the same time, we will remain hopeful for how we can also allocate resources at some point in the future um, 
But you do have some resource, I mean, someone else in the team will be handling the cases as they arise. So right now we do have someone who um, specifically handles the larger organized retail theft cases, um, amongst some other responsibilities that that lawyer has, uh, but we don't have a dedicated sole prosecutor right, for right. retail no, theft. I know, but yes. the, as they come up, as the, as the cases come up, not even at the organized level, but the more frequent, lower level, you have someone that is in the is in a particular unit that hand, I mean it rotates. There's a team of people that there, can be yes, assigned. It, they go into the pool for for misdemeanors and general felonies. Got it. Yes. And if you could just keep us my office updated, you know, as part of the working group that we've been in on the state pro grant process, that would be helpful. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being Thank here. You. Thank you. Thank you. Um, colleagues, I think uh, is it okay if we actually go to break? Uh, for a 45 minutes recess, um, and then we will return at one o'clock. We'll go to a lunch recess. Thank you. We'll return at one o'clock today. Thank you.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
Thank you, and uh, welcome back. Returning from the recess um, for the Budget and Appropriation Committee on J June 23, um, and uh, this is our last uh, city departments for the day for on this agenda, and our last uh, department is our police department. So, sorry, Chief, to, uh, before you start, I just want to make sure uh, if we can just quickly verbal uh, to just about the uh, technical uh, reduction recommendations, and then uh, I, I, I think you may have a disagreement here, um, and just articulate whether what they are, uh, not what they are, like that, whether you do or you don't uh, have technical reduction re recommendation disagreement, and then also policy disagreement, and then allow the BLA to uh, go into their their summary, and then uh, and then we will go through your uh, disagreement uh, one by one, okay. and and. With each disagreement, that to allow the budget and legislative analysts to have a response. So that's been our format today. Okay, great. So no need for the PowerPoint. Um, you're welcome to have it when it's the the, the specific sections of disagreement to Got bring it. it up, and then allow this a uh, little bit of a dialogue for, for, format today between yourself and allow the BLA to respond, and then the if the if the members actually want to ask questions, part, pertaining to that specific disagreement then we'll go to that, and then we'll go one by one. Just to prevent any confusion, especially for the controller to be able to track. If, if we end up coming uh, some type of agreement on the floor, then it's easy to record, and, and not in like bunch up at the, at the end, that's all. Thank you, thank, thank you, you uh, Chair Chan. So um, first, good afternoon, Chair Chan and committee. Um, so I'll follow the format that you just laid out. As far as the BLA recommendations, there are basically two. Um, one, to reduce overtime by 2.7 million, and the other one was a policy recommendation to, um, to not fund the, the TrueNART units that we were requesting. We are in disagreement at this point, and so I'll just uh, stop there, because I know BLA will uh, make some comments, and then we can answer whatever questions and have the discussion as Thank per you. the format. I'm sorry. The overtime cut had been revised to 1.4 million, so, but we're still in disagreement. Understood. Thank you. Good afternoon, Chair Chan, members of the committee. Um, our recommendations for the police department are summarized on page 97 of our report. Our recommended reductions to the proposed budget total uh, $2,372,470 in fiscal year 23-24 all of which are ongoing savings. Our policy recommendations uh, total $200,000 in fiscal year 23-24, all of which are one-time savings. Our recommended reductions to the proposed budget total um, are actually the same amount in, in year two of the budget, and they're ongoing. And um, we will be happy to respond to the specific uh, disagreements, I guess one by one as you outlined, um, so, but we're available for questions. Okay. Please go ahead, Chief. Thank you. I'll, I'll start with the first. You know, um, in terms of our, our request for the overtime, as you know, the overlying concept is the you know, critical shortage of staffing that we have. And we work with you know, the Mayor's Budget Office to really ask for what we thought we needed and, and what we could you know, 
what we needed to, to get us through the staffing, you know, at least temporarily, while we build up our, our ranks through the hiring process. So, you know, the, the cut, although I know it's been some movement downward on the cut, the cut really is critical in, in terms of us being able to accomplish what I just described. And I do want to allow Director Leon, because he does have, from his, you know, fiscal uh, director uh, position, have uh, more insight on exactly what the nuts and bolts of that. Thank discussion. you, Chief. Good afternoon, Madam Chair. Patrick Leon, Chief Financial Officer. Over the last couple of days, we've been working pretty closely with the BLA. Uh, I think where the disagreement is, is uh, within the calculations of how much the projected savings, uh, uh, how much the projected salary savings would be. And for the department, we're trying to keep within our budget and what's been proposed within the, within the budget, our resource needs for next year for our overtime allocations. We are relying upon the vacancy savings in order to meet budget, and we're trying to keep within the budget. With the BLA cuts, that makes it much harder to do. I know it's, it's been reduced downward, but we're still um, relying upon every vacancy dollar in order to meet our targets. And our position is we don't want to come back and to request for a supplemental. I do understand that. So um, can you just elaborate just a little bit more then, you know, how do you at this moment budget your overtime and safeguard your overtime? So within overtime, we, we've shared several documents with the BLA and also we, we've been working with the mayor's office. For next year, given the number of vacancies that we have, we do anticipate a significant portion and a significant increase compared to this year for uh, overtime backfill. If we look at the, our actual um, sworn staffing from the start of this fiscal year versus what we'll start with next year, we have less officers, and that's going to contribute to an increase in, in uh, overtime backfill. There's other categories that we're expecting to increase. Uh, we do have plans internally to, to have some reductions to offset uh, those other areas, but in total, we still anticipate um, expending the same amount this year. Some of the uh, one example I can give is in years past, we've been able to rely upon existing staffing to help supplement overtime. Um, when we look at the number of events that occur throughout the city, in years past, we've been able to use on-duty resources to help uh, provide the police presence to ensure safe events. When we look at the present year, we've spent more on overtime for citywide events than we have in the last several years, even pre-pandemic. With the lower staffing, it's going to require more overtime resources to provide the same level of service because we don't have those staffing resources. And so, uh, and, and so going into next fiscal year, the overtime budget We've allocated to a lot of different areas. Uh, what we've proposed is what we feel is needed in order to provide adequate public safety resources uh, given the reduced staffing levels that we have. Thank you. Thank you. Chair Chan and committee members, Nick Menard from the Budget Legislative Analyst Office. So this 
uh, recommended reduction to overtime. We've been working closely with the police department. We've had a really high quality engagement this budget season. And, but it's built on um, an, a projection of what their staffing needs are going to be over the next two years. Um, and within that projection, there's a lot of assumptions about the amount of attrition, the amount of temporary staff that they're gonna need. And so, and it also assumes that they continue to spend $81 million in overtime, which is quadruple the overtime that they've historically spent, right? But that's the amount that they're projecting to spend this year. So this cut, I believe, uh, allows, would not interrupt the hiring plan, for the mayor's hiring plan, will still allow the department to spend $81 million in overtime. And I also want to point out that there are other changes citywide that are um, having an impact on police work, which include additional uh, community ambassadors in the police department. It includes the deployment of heart, right? So there are these you know, diversions um, from sworn work to civilian work that will take place over that period. Uh, we will also be doing an audit of police overtime as approved by the board, um, which I think will help drive some efficiencies. So I do, th I do feel like this is a reasonable um, adjustment that will not impact services, and that's why also we made it two years. Thank you, and I just want to confirm, uh, I am hearing $81 million over time, uh, you know, just say, or like reserve, like budgeted, uh, $81 million that is budgeted specifically uh, in the events you need to spend on overtime, or you're actually anticipating to uh, spend on overtime. And I'm gonna I try to make clear that is $81 million per fiscal years? For Yes, $81 million for next fiscal year. Okay. So it's about $162 million for the total for the next two fiscal years. Uh, it's 81 next, or it's 81 in, our projected overtime is $81 million for fiscal year 24. For fiscal year 25, uh, there's, there's some uncertainty on like what the exact amount is going to be because given that we anticipate hiring additional officers through your academies, and that's going to influence the amount of overtime we'll need for the following year. I think what was included within the base, uh, within the base for fiscal year 25, it, I think it, I believe it's about 30, 33 million or so. For the for the second. For, for yes, for, for fiscal the year 25. Fiscal year, because uh, you're anticipating that. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. No. Because you're also anticipating that you will meet your goal of 100 FTEs of new recruit. Yes, we do expect to hire 100 new recruits in the next fiscal year. We do anticipate um, requiring the use of vacancy savings in fiscal year 25. Uh, given that we're not going to hire our way out of um, our defi staffing deficit in just the next year. But in terms of the actual numbers, it's going to vary based on how many people we get into the academy next year. How many vacancies do you have for civilian? For civilians, as of current, we have 84. 84? 84, 84 uh, FTE uh, vacancy for Eight, civilian? 84 positions. What, what I would add to that is if you look at this fiscal year, we had to go for a supplemental. At the six-month mark, we, were proje we projected that we were entering into a deficit, 
Uh, and at that six-month meeting, we were on a hiring freeze. Uh, it is required uh, if the department is unable to balance its budget, the yep. controller's office usually places a hiring freeze. So we've been in a hiring freeze for the last five months. And people that have separated, we haven't been able to fill. So now we're um, trying to get back and uh, through the backlog and hire all the vacant positions. Because even when the supplemental, that was approved, you were still overspending, and therefore you were in a hiring freeze, even with a $25 million supplemental. I wouldn't say that. It's, it was a combination of we were working with the controller's office and the mayor's office. Obviously, there is some delay on once the budget supplemental gets passed. We were working with the mayor's office and controllers to see what the spending patterns were. Uh, I will say that from the last, since the budget supplemental was passed, if you look at each pay period, we've been within budget since that time. But it does take, there is a lag between like uh, when the pay period posts and when we get the results. And, and when you say hiring that. freeze, my assumption is, sorry, uh, hiring freeze is, you, you only mean hiring freeze for the civilian. For, uh, yes. Uh, thank you. I just want to make clarification, right? That's like the hiring free. You, first of all, you, you, with this, uh, what we're looking at in this proposed budget, you now have for the first fiscal year budgeted $81 million for overtime. And then the second year, subsequent year, roughly about $33 million. Of course, we don't know because we, uh, that also dependent on one thing. It's that number one thing is whether you hit your hiring goal of 100 uh, new recruit uh, FTEs, uh, and right now with 84, because I thought you have 104, but I guess it's 84 uh, vacancy for civilians, uh, and you have been on hiring freeze specifically for that 84 FTEs, again, anticipating the fact that you really want to balance out your books. It, yeah, it, it was at 104, right, like a month or two ago, and we've, we've been trying to play catch up, and so as of right now, it's 84. Understood. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, and then, sorry, go ahead and go to well, the second. Oh, if you have anything to add. Yeah, Chair Chan, I was just going to add, in terms of the looking forward, you know, our collaboration with the Mayor's Office, the Budget Office, uh, the Controller's Office, and our Human Resources Department, the City's Human Resources Department, what we plan to do and what we're going to do is actually um, work with them to analyze our overtime and the trends. And in addition to what the BLA is doing, we believe that that will yield strategies and additional savings moving forward as well. Understood. And then your second disagreement? Second disagreement is regarding the, the true NARC uh, units that we, we're really the overall goal is to have every station equipped with these uh, true NARC units, which it's about efficiency and expediency, and, and then there's some others, contactless, and, and that um, offers some advantages. I mean, definitely uh, we read the BLA's report, and we disagree with that. And just given our, our challenges with the whole you know, illicit narcotics uh, issue in our city, we want to be as efficient as we can in terms of testing. Also, with the constitutionality of making sure that when we detain or arrest somebody that it is actually narcotics and not some other substance that is not against the law. So it, it speeds that process up as well. Um, 
the goal is to have it in every station, and this will afford us that ability to do that. And so that's the that's the, really the chief agreement. I know there, you know, the counter, uh, the, the the counter to that is that we don't need them at every station, and that this, you know, there's testing down the line, which is true. There is testing down the line, but the true narc speeds the process up at least to confirm what it is that the person who was under investigation is had in their possession, and that really is the key to understanding whether or not that person should remain in custody or not. So we want to do that as quickly as possible, and I think in light of us you know, policing constitutionally and wanting to do our work the right way, it, that balance is really important. So we disagree with that as well. Thank you. I also want to point out there is a third recommendation on civilian attrition, which we oh, can sorry. which we can deal with after this. But um, on the true narc, that we do consider approval of purchasing this additional equipment to be a policy matter for the board. Uh, this budget includes two hundred thousand dollars to uh, buy ten true narc devices that test for substances, and you know the department has six already, is my understanding. Um, deployed in the crime lab and also in their narcotics unit. And the plan is to purchase more, to have one in every station. And I think in talking to the department, there's a couple different purposes for the devices. They provide preliminary re results of, you know, determinations of what an unknown substance is, whether it's illegal or, or toxic in some way or not. Uh, but the, the, the uncertainty around those results is such that you would still have to get a lab test, uh, you know, to meet evidentiary standards, you know, in a, in a court proceeding. Um, and, so, and the department does have a contract of about $200,000 a year to do that kind of testing. So I think that this is uh, an attempt to provide preliminary results, and it's, I think, it could provide some efficiency in the department's operations to know which investigations to prioritize. Uh, they haven't used it in this way before. Um, it does not appear to confer any safety benefit according to the academic consensus as described in media reports. Um, so I think for those reasons, it does feel a little redundant. Um, and so the board can consider not approving all 10, not approving any of them, using the ones they have now in a new way. So that's why, that's the kind of thinking there. Thank you. Um, I think my question's about these uh, always, and I think any type of new equipment, but particularly this one, uh, because it's detecting, um, according to, uh, not this uh, information, uh, like according to you, it's more than 498. Uh, suspected controlled substance that this true NAR can actually detect. And my question is um, on, on couple front, and what is the education and training plan for uh, all the officers uh, that will be utilizing this tool to make sure that you do have, um, like you're utilizing the equipment correctly for correct results. Uh, and then the second is uh, how would that fit into Brady rule and in terms of the results that you identify from these equipment? Well, the, um, the usually with this, well, not usually with this type of equipment, the manufacturer 
puts out training guidelines and we follow those guidelines. So our officers are trained per the manufacturer. And the crime lab also provides yeah. training. Oh, thank you. Our officers are trained per the, the manufacturer's guidelines and then our, our crime lab, our forensics uh, crime lab also provides, puts out training in terms of how to use those, uh, those true narc devices. I, I will say also this, um, just, just uh, to, to Nick's um, response there, you know, the officers, there, there is an efficiency in, in talking to the officers, particularly the ones who use this equipment. If they have to travel to another location like 850 Bryant, it eats up time. And arrests are cumbersome enough as it is because of the reporting and all the things that officers are required to do. So one of the things in terms of getting officers back to their patrol duties or whatever their assignments are as quickly as possible is really important because that absence of officers on the streets just exacerbates this very situation that we're talking about in terms of you know, not having officers on the streets to handle calls, to do whatever the community demands are. So any little time savings, it all adds up. I mean, any little time savings helps. You know, if we can be more efficient with the booking process, with the analyzation process at, at the front end, all those things add up. So I know it may not seem like it's that important, but it really is. And I've been out and talked to enough officers who do this day in and day out, and they really appreciate when they have true NARC at their station because it does save them time. What is the percentage of accuracy of detection? Um, that I don't know off the top of my head, but let me see. I'll look for that while we're talking and see if we can get an answer for you. Good afternoon, Supervisors. Catherine McGuire, Executive Director of the Strategic Management Bureau. Uh, I did want to give you a little bit more background on the process and the use of these devices as compared to the lab that we send um, yeah. drugs for testing. Um, <clears throat> the, this, so presump a presumptive test is necessary for, uh, to proceed to arraignment, ultimately. Um, and then the formal forensic test by the crime lab uh, the contracted uh, crime lab, that is for court evidence. So, you know, there may be things that happen between arraignment and a trial that then bar the need for that test. But, um, but ultimately, the, the presumptive test is what we refer to it as. The presumptive test is necessary. Well, but right now you don't have this equipment. What I, I think what I'm asking is, again, the, detect, the actual equipment itself, detecting the substance, like any equipment, right? Like there, the, the failure of that equipment percentage is this. There, there's no equipment that is always 100% correct. So I'm just uh, trying to understand the accuracy of this equipment. If I yeah. may, yeah. just a very layperson perspective, mm -hmm. and I'm trying to walk a scenario. For example, you know, officer in the situation trying to detect like you know whether this, there's drug that or controlled substance or illegal you know drugs on someone and so this is uh, trunar using this and wanting to make sure that it's actually uh, accurate and i just want to understand that accuracy because that also is assuming that with that I, I, again, I don't want to go too deep into the Brady rule situation, but then again, then that's like it is then you you with that tool. Now you're saying dependent on this tool's determination, you will say, oh, this is cause for arrest. I, I'm, I'm again layperson, don't understand too much about the procedures, so try to understand the scenario. 
Yeah, I think the Chief's going to jump in here, but I will add that um, we can certainly look into at least the equipment's efficacy. Yeah. I think we would have to do internal testing to determine whether our officers are then using the equipment to that degree, you know, to the degree that That's right. would reach that efficacy. Right. And then secondarily, but um, I, uh, yes, the, the test is necessary to go to the next step, so to speak. And, but it's also, um, we do have equipment already, this equipment in the department. I think the, the budget and legislative analyst mentioned that. This would just expand it to more stations so that then officers, as the chief was mentioning, don't have to go to another station to process it, but rather can, can go to their own station, not crisscrossing the city. I understand. I, I, so I, I think my question again is that the equipment itself in terms of accuracy, the percentage, you know, like do we know when it fell, uh, maintenance of those equipments, but most importantly also then you add in the human error with the with trainings and education, but yeah, I'm I, just trying to learn. I think I have a, I think, I, I think this is what you're, you're looking for, uh, Chair Chan, according to the manufacturer. Uh, and this goes back to 2012, their testing has produced a range of 80 to 100% accuracy. And that is when compared to testing the same substance that was tested by TrueNARC with certified labs. So, and then uh, a very, very low, almost zero, as far as the uh, false positive hit rate. So that's what the manufacturer is, is saying. And again, to, to the point that the BLA made, and Director McGuire, if it goes to court and goes to trial, it will be tested by a certified lab, which is our, our CRAM lab is responsible for that, either through, through a vendor or, or we test, depending on the substance, so. Thank, thank you, and uh, Vice Chair Mendelman. Thank, thank you, Chair Chan. Um, I mean, given the uh, demand for officers um, and given what is still a decline in the department. I mean, we're talking about hiring another 100, but your most recent class had, was it nine uh, graduates? So right. hoping that turns around, but I don't see any reason to believe that the demands for overtime in the coming year would be any less um, than, than they were previously. I hope that starts going down in year two and um, you know, getting it down to 33 million seems ambitious, but, um, but good. So I wouldn't be inclined to, you know, try to squeeze that 1.3 million, and I hope you don't have to come back to ask for more, but um, I also am not super inclined to, like, um, fine-tune the, uh, the, 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 um, the true can, note the true narc, but I am curious, like, is every, is every station making drug arrests and like what are like like what are what are the numbers like for that because certainly tenderloin is doing a ton um but i'm curious how how much drug arrest activity is actually happening outside of that yeah i think it's safe to say that drug arrests over time have been made at every station in, in san francisco the bulk of our work right now is centered in the southern and tenderloin police districts uh, because that's where everything is at least the most visible uh, parts of San Francisco's drug issues are but with that said I mean you can go to Park Station, Haight Street you know some other places in Mission District 
there are drug arrests that are made and drugs recovered in every district. I would so. just be curious to see if, I mean, presumably this conversation is going to continue or yeah, I'm imagining this conversation is going to continue till next week. So uh, maybe if it's possible to get us information by next time on how many drug arrests have happened in each uh, station. Yes, absolutely, yes, sir. Uh, and if I could just point to that point, um, let's use Richmond Station as an example. Generally, particularly at night, their staffing is, is, is fairly low. I mean, we do, we set minimums. Uh, Assistant Chief Lazar and his team have set minimums, but even with that, the staffing is usually not every sector in the district. So I say that because it even makes, drives the point home that if they do get a narcotics arrest, and they have to drive across the city to, to do the presumptive test, then they're going to be out of their district even longer. So I, I know that may not mean a lot to some people, but, you know, if you're... I think that's persuasive, but I'd still like to see the numbers. Yes, we will get them. Thank you. Thank you. And I think, uh, according to BLA, we have a third uh, disagreement. Is that correct? Chief, what is your third... What, what is the third one? I'm sorry. Uh, we, ha we had a one million civilian attrition adjustment. Okay. Yes. Oh, yeah. We, we disagree with that. I think Patrick covered that, but... Yeah. So in terms of the personnel uh, recommendations, we're disagreeing with both of them. The, within our department budget, we are um, counting on vacancy savings in order to supplement the, our overtime usage not just on the sworn side, but also on the civilian side. And so collectively, with, uh, with the reductions that are being recommended, it does um, exceed what we would project as savings and, uh, versus what we would anticipate as our overtime expenditures, and so we disagree on that respect. Understood. Uh, Chief, you know, last week when you were here, last Friday when you were here, um, so I just want to... I don't think we have any more questions on the attrition uh, disagreement there. Um, I, I think I want to circle back to the conversation from last week when both President Peskin was here, and we have specifically questions about just the command staff, our staffing level that you had. And so I just wanted to circle back. I, I do have a copy of your um, presentation that you have today. Um, and just trying to understand, I, I know you, we already had that conversation, but I just wanted to uh, have a better understanding, Chief. Uh, as you currently have, I can see that uh, even it's a chart that you provided, uh, is that you have two assistant chief and you have five deputy chief. And then you have, I think, uh, if I understand correctly, eight commanders. Seven, eight, five commanders, and it looks like you have eight, at least eight, if not more. Um, thank you for pulling up the slides. Um, two assistant chiefs, and then at least five deputy uh, five chiefs, uh, eight commanders, and then at least uh, five, com uh, is that right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight commanders? And then you have at least five directors here that we're, we're looking at. And I think you have probably roughly 30 captains as well. Um, you know, I, I think I also wanted to reference oftentimes folks, 
didn't recognize, and at least in the budget and legislative analyst report as well, that uh, besides uh, this command staff increase, I believe, uh, which BLA can probably talk a little about, about because they actually did an analysis before, not not in this not in this budget. But I also just want to quickly um, put on the record to reflect that um, the the police departments consistently in the last five years uh, annual budget has been increasing and not decreasing. Um, your uh, 2019. 2020 uh, annual budget was at $692 million and more. To date, uh, and throughout time, it's roughly uh, the same. You, you have some slightly dip, but you definitely come back up um, last year and this year uh, by, by far compared to your 2019's time. So, so it, it is an increase, and it's about roughly 12.2% increase uh, from, from your 2019, 2020 time. So I just wanted to sort of set that context. So it's been increasing. Um, and, and looking at your command staff, could you just speak a little bit more again about, you know, um, over time, how you structured this? Do you see that as we're going forward to maintaining the structure? Will you consider and will you be open some type of adjustments and just really start thinking about, you know, given the fact that you want to continue to have recruit um, and, and it's my question, it's like, do we continue the spending? And, and I have talked about that, even with our Department of Emergency uh, Management, it's like, are we continuing uh, on, on spending and increasing the spending? And are we having the results that we're looking for? Um, and w what is it that we need to do? And, and I want to also be all for all of us to be mindful that we're also being asked to really figure out as a city to build 82 thousand more units, like housing units. Uh, we, we want, uh, clearly it means that, I don't know if we all want that, but then I think that there's clearly a mandate uh, for from the states to the city and to say we must grow in population. Uh, what I would say that the state should actually also fund us in the infrastructure, if so, but that does put pressure on our first responder, including your units. How do you foresee, just in terms of your command staff structure, you know, balance it all out with your rank and file? Uh, so uh, I'll answer uh, the questions one at a time. And, yes, please. And please, uh, if I didn't get them all, and I'll be brief. So first of all, the structure of the command staff. You know, we've organized the department based on the, the need at hand. And I'll just to give it just brief context. You know, over a decade ago, when the police executive research forum was, you know, commissioned or paid by the city to come in and do a organizational look at the police department, even at that time, the recommendation was to reinstitute the assistant chief positions, and the structure was fairly closely aligned to where we are right now. And this was before the department took on one of the most aggressive collaborative reform initiatives in the nation. Um, with that, in 2016, when the USDOJ released their report, um, there was a critical need to restructure the department in terms of the command staff and oversight, and that's what the bulk of this is. Um, the reform initiative, although we've, we've done a lot of work and gotten, as you all know, 245 of the recommendations to substantial compliance, we still have work to do, and then we have to maintain the work that we did. And on the other side of that, 
we're at a time where even though overall crime has decreased with the exception of ups and downs over the last you know, seven years or so, and if you look even further back, you know, like our homicides have decreased significantly, we're at a time right now where people are more feel fearful than ever about yeah. crime. And so we have to address that as well. And, and so the short of it is all the administrative and oversight and um, training responsibilities that come with improving the department by way of reform, it's a significant, significant lift. And it takes command staff, it takes professional staff, and it takes all of that to get that done. Um, the majority of our command staff, at least the sworn portion, are in operations. On the administrative side of the house, which is headed by assistant chief or acting assistant chief, our chief of staff, Denise Flaherty, we have one deputy chief and two commanders. And we have captains as well, but we're talking about command staff, and command staff is commanders and above. Uh, one deputy chief, two commanders. Those two commanders are one is in risk management and one is in the administration bureau, which is responsible for recruitment and hiring. Everything else is operational, and they're under assistant chief Lazar. Um, I, I lay that out because the structure and the operational structure, we, we have to have the oversight. And I know some people, I'm not saying this, this audience, but some people believe you can just put cops out there and let them do their jobs and everything will be okay. That's not the case. And, and I don't want to be oversimplistic, but when we look at things that have caused police departments to be in a bad way in terms of the need for reform and oversight, a lot of times you go straight to the structure of the department and go straight to the oversight. We believe, and, and I think our matrix uh, consulting report confirms that this department is the size that it needs to be for today. Now, I'll just end by saying we always have to look at whether that need is still there. When we complete the reform and have a efficient ways to sustain all the things that we put in place, I think we always have to relook at the size of the command staff. So we're always open to that and welcome the scrutiny and the conversation. But we believe right now, based on the operational needs, based on all the administrative and training needs, let me, let me pause and give you a good example. You know, one of the things that we have to do right now with our reform is we have to re, revise our general orders, our rule book, basically, mm -hmm. on a rotating period within every five years. Um, in the last 10 years, that equated to, I think, something like 28. In the last seven, like four or five. Yeah, it, like 20 or so general orders. We have 44 on the table right now. And just... To tell you what that entails is we have deputy chiefs and commanders that lead these, you know, executive sponsors to, to develop the general order. Then we all have meeting after meeting after meeting with DPA, community groups when appropriate, and it's a lot of work, and it takes a lot of administrative hours just to do that. So without the structure, then that work is actually going to be pushed down to the people that are operational that are doing, and some of it is anyway, it takes an infrastructure to support all the needs that this department is facing right now, operationally, administratively, reform-wise, and again, I know that costs money. I, I do understand that costs money, uh, but if we want the police department that I think the public and 
the board and others have, and we want for ourselves for that matter. We have to do these things. And so we're always open to looking at it and scrutiny and trying, finding better ways to do it. But we do believe, we believe that we're structured where we should be right now. Thank you, Chief. And, you know, traditionally that typically everyone to look into a police department and what is what are the matrix of success that that really uh, follows a successful uh, police department, which I think that in under your leadership, that definition has changed in a sense where, you know, traditionally it was just about response time and arrest rate. And, and clearance rate. And those are the three sort of cornerstone of how you s evaluate a police department uh, perform. But I think under your leadership, uh, what we also have seen is, uh, which I appreciate, the decrease of excessive force, which significantly decreased, right? Like, I think that I wanna say, um, I am not questioning that your leadership and your, um, thinking uh, and your vision about reform and how you brought us from where we were, which is under the, even to have to under the review of Department of United States of, uh, you know, Department of Justice that will have to come in and under their review and pushing us for those reform. And it was under your leadership that we, we are able to make those progress. So I appreciate that. I just want to strongly encourage you to start thinking and taking us to the next level. Um, and, and I appreciate and just really have questions too. Also about, you know, um, I, I discussed it last week and I'm going to reiterate that um, I would love to see, not necessarily you, we'll love to see you, uh, but I do understand you're a busy person, uh, but we just would love to see you and your team be able to return on a quarterly basis to report back, uh, again, overtime spending, uh, recruitment, uh, whether you're meeting the target. Uh, but I do still want to ask the traditional cornerstone of the hallmark uh, of success, which is, you know, response time, uh, arrest, and clearance. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, continue to keep track of the assessed force um, rate uh, and, you know, that, that the conversation that we've been having. Thank you, ma'am. And, and I just want to be clear. I didn't take it any way other than what you just said. So just... Uh wanted to explain to the public, you know, why we are structured the way we're structured. So thank you for that opportunity. Of course. I don't see any name on the roster, but Chief, I, I do think that because of the disagreement, oh, sorry, BIA wants to make a conclu conclu concluding remark, because we're going to continue this conversation, if we may, uh, just so that we can reconcile some differences and, yeah. uh, and continue this conversation. Thank you. And thank thank you. you to the board, to the thank committee. You. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, with that, um, Mr. Clerk, do we, uh, what are the business before us today? So there is the recessed meeting for Monday and mm -hmm. the recessed meeting for Wednesday. So there would be two motions before the committee right now, one of them to carry over the balance of today's agenda to those recessed meetings so that you can consider them later. And then the other would be a motion to recess the meeting itself. Uh, so move on the carrying out the balance of the items to Monday. Second by Vice Chair Mendelman. Uh, roll call, please. On the motion to carry the rest of the agenda items on today's agenda over to the recessed meeting, this being the June 26th, 2023 meeting to happen on Monday. On that motion, Vice Chair Mandelman? Aye. Mandelman, aye. <clears throat> Excuse me. Member Safai? Safai, aye. Member Ronan? Aye. Ronan, aye. Member Walton? 
Walton, aye. Chair Chan? Aye. Chan, aye. Madam Chair, there is no opposition. Thank you. The motion passes. And I believe the second motion is to uh, recess this meeting until Monday, June 26, at 10 o'clock in this chamber. Second by uh, Supervisor Ronan and uh, roll call, please. On that motion, Member uh, Vice Chair Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Member Safai. Safai, aye. Member Ronan. Ronan, aye. Member Walton. Walton, aye. Chair Chan. Thank you. The motion passes. And uh, with that, uh, we are now in recess. Recessed. <laughs>